Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome on to the 15 and 60. Lots of really interesting stuff to talk about here. We're going to start at the bottom of the alphabet because we got to talk about that Jazz Clippers game. Maybe the most high-level game that we've seen in quite some time, maybe even this uh, whole season, frankly, uh, given that they actually had everyone available for both teams. And there are a few teams where we went a little deeper on this time. There may be a few were a little sparser on, but hopefully you'll find that that all evens out in the end at the end of the season unless you're an oklahoma city fan sorry no just kidding we actually did a lot on okc this week but let's uh get rolling here with the utah jazz danny yeah the jazz are 24 and 6 6 and 1 since the last 15 and 16 remember all six of that six and one i believe were without mike conley uh they're still first in net rating plus 12.2 third in offense second in defense and 538 projects that they will win 54 games which is tops in the western conference and of course they're going to make the playoffs and yeah part of what made the friday game so remember that the clippers and jazz played twice this week what made the friday game so exciting is that conley Kawhi, and paul george all of whom missed the game on Wednesday, which Utah won, were available in the game on Friday. And so that gave it, of course, a different color, a different tenor, and made it a much more informative matchup, let's put it that way. So let me ask you this, Danny, before we begin. Did this game change any of your priors at all? Yeah, I would say that it did. And I, you know, I don't, I'm not going to say anything too dramatic, like, or, you know, anything like that. But I, like, what, ha- what kind of my thought process in this was the Clippers got hot early. And it seemed the Clippers were succeeding in a lot of the ways that made me a little bit skeptical of the Jazz as a playoff team. They were, you know, the individual dominance, they were able to uh, get, Abaka uh, uh, actually had a better Wednesday game than, than Friday game, but he still was able to get Gobert into some actions, get him out on the floor. Um, and so, I was kind of like, oh God, here we go again. But then I thought the Jazz run in the second and especially the third quarter where it wasn't fluky shooting, it wasn't anything else. It was them playing good defense and it was Donovan Mitchell executing on offense better. He had a rough first quarter actually in both games. And so that made me feel better. It's like, okay, well, they may not, they might not be able to get to their fastball every time, but it looked like, okay, this is how the Jazz could beat a good team. Yeah, I, I I thought that overall, though, the Clippers were able to control things in generally the way that I expected that they would be able to. And I mean, what, what did you think about how the Jazz were getting shots in the period that they made that run that so impressed you? 
Well, I mean, so the the, the offense wasn't. A, I mean, it was basically to me they were conceding to an extent. Donovan Mitchell pull up two point jump shots, and he got into a rhythm and actually made some of those, which was which was good. They were also able to a couple times. They didn't happen much, but they were able to take advantage of some helpers. There was a beautiful Donovan Mitchell. I think it was a skip pass to the corner uh, where in the so basically it was like you know the they, the Clippers were playing the Jazz the way the Jazz play, where you make the close read and then you just kick it over, and so. I think it was Paul George tried to jump the first pass and Mitchell waited him out, hits the pass to the corner and was wide open. Bogdanovich absolutely drilled it. So a couple of little, little bit trickier things like that. Also, Gobert had a couple of offensive rebound putbacks and I think those will be there against the, against the Clippers. And then, and then the other, uh, I, I guess this isn't as an offensive thing, but it's still, I think pertinent to this is that when Zubats was on the floor with Gobert, I thought that in, and I ended up watching some of both of these games, I thought that he really had trouble. And so that it's just, the Clippers have other engines, but to, to see Zubats just have that trouble, it's like, oh yeah, that's always going to be an issue. It is funny because Zubats was actually plus 12, but I agreed with you. I thought that on both ends, more so actually, I think on the Clippers offensive end, that the Jazz looked a lot better because uh, Zubaz is the only player they put out there where they're not stretching out Rudy Gobert a little bit. And I think looking at the shot charts in this game was very instructive. Only 14 shots at the rim for the Jazz, and they only got seven corner threes. There were 9 to 27 above the break threes. A lot of those came late in the Furious comeback. The Clippers led by 13 with under two minutes, or I'm sorry, two minutes and 30 seconds to go. And the Jazz did get back into contact. I don't believe they ever actually had a chance to tie, but that was just a, a lot of like really difficult shot making by Donovan Mitchell, which is was good at the end. I mean, they, they to be able to make those shots is nice, but I also didn't. That was a different kind of basketball with the the crazy comeback. I, I don't really consider that to have much predictive value the way I would at the other part. So the Jazz weren't able to get the shots that they wanted, even in the first game. The when everybody was out for the Clippers, the first half they were really struggling to get the shots that they wanted yeah it's true the jazz finish up 15 of 30 from floater range and four of eight on twos outside of the lane now 15 of 30 from floater range some of that too is you know those could be right on the borderline let me look at the shot plot here to actually yeah more of more of those missed floaters are kind of right around the restricted area as well or are more than many of them were made actually i should say but uh but then the clippers also you know not a surprise they were 10 of 15 at the rim took about the same number of three-pointers and so it basically the game was a mid-range shooting contest and i believe that the la clippers are going to win a mid-range shooting contest against the utah jazz they have better mid-range shooters they have guys with more size who can get to that in an isolation as opposed to more really getting to it uh, with a conventional pick and roll defense so, so that's one aspect the well, other and, aspect well, was, when, yeah. let me make one other point there they also have yeah. a defensive scheme that is better at contesting those shots to make them difficult than the jazz do like the jazz are i would say the jazz are conceding more of those as open shots than the clippers were the clippers with some of their switching and everything else they're tougher looks for utah for inferior shooters yeah, I mean, if you have to say 
you know that's not the jazz game the jazz game right. is they've been one of the best offenses in the league by getting a ton of threes including a ton of corner threes doing a ton of pick and roll over and over again get them in the blender the quinn snyder system now uh, they have better one-on-one play with clarkson with mitchell a little bit of conley uh, and better mid-range play than they've had in the past with some of their teams i mean this is clearly their best team they've been unbelievable so far this year i mean this run that they're going on you know it has been one of the better runs that we've seen over the last five years or so with the way they've been dominating it and having won what did it end up being like 20 or 21 or something like that so um and, and they've had runs like this before but a lot of that was schedule based and they've been beating good teams a lot more like Locke has been talking about this a lot that their record against good teams is much better so far this season but so still though a mid-range shooting contest like the Clippers can win that and somewhat related is that if there's a lot of one-on-one play in this game and the Clippers we're forcing the Jazz into that with their switching. The Clippers more want to play that way and want to get into the mid-range. And Kawhi and Paul George and Marcus Morris are all outstanding at, at that. And so if that's going to be the other thing, if it's going to be one-on-one play, you mentioned as well that the Clippers defense, they're trying to switch. They generally have better individual defenders than the Jazz. The Jazz tried to go at Marcus Morris. That's probably where they had the most success. But, you know, Marcus Morris is no slouch still. And... Whereas the Clippers going against the Jazz, you can try to get a matchup against a smaller player. They're starting Donovan Mitchell guarding Paul George, which, you know, Paul George actually fell off after a nice first quarter, but still, that's not a matchup that you love for the Jazz with Paul George having eight inches on Donovan Mitchell. And Royce O'Neal, I thought, had a pretty decent game. It's not like Kawhi was just like so out of control. I actually think that a series between these two teams is going to be a little bit more of a defensive series. And then the Clippers really broke out of that with this lineup with Marcus Morris at center. They didn't go back to Ibaka. And now that they have Nick Batum, you can really go with a bunch of decent, like-sized defenders. Patrick Beverly was huge. The Jazz actually ended up having to guard Patrick Beverly with Rudy Gobert. He got a couple of wide open corner threes during the big Clippers run that put them up 13 with two minutes and 30 seconds to go and so there wasn't well the Jazz did fight back gamely if if the Clippers are going to force the Jazz into as much one-on-one play as we saw in this game I think it's got to be advantage Clippers regardless of whether the Jazz have home court or not yeah, it is advantage Clippers. Uh, just quickly before we forget to go through the Clippers stats so far, they are 22 and 9, 5 and 1 since the last 15 and 60, third in net rating, plus 7 per 100 possessions, second in offense, 18th in defense, and they're projected to now to finish second. I believe the Raptor projections now understand how long Anthony Davis is going to be out. 51 wins, and of course, they're going to make the playoffs. And uh, while we're talking about these two teams, another for me important takeaway, you know, I guess sometimes we use these as a, a weekend review of sorts is that even with this loss i mean they also won a ton of other games i think the jazz are getting much better situated for a potential home court advantage and in some ways more important than home court advantage the number one seed possibility of the lakers and clippers being on the other side of the bracket and that is a best case scenario for them and it's possible you know like the clippers are playing well it's possible that the clippers can jump them but i think the idea of the lakers especially if ad is going to be out for almost a month the idea and we'll talk about them later the idea of them pushing hard it just doesn't seem that likely like that's who it doesn't seem like the lakers are going to be the team pushing even though it could be the other two yeah we'll talk more about the lakers but now perhaps the jazz can panic 
about getting the number one seed and having the Lakers fall to the four seed. Now, now maybe that's not your your worst nightmare. Um, uh, so yeah, Jazz currently have a one and a half game lead on both the Clippers oh, and the Lakers. I yeah. had a couple of a couple other stray notes. Um, sure. It, not a surprise. I'm not trying to damn him with anything, but uh, the Jazz had momentum at the start of the third, and I understand why they do the sub rotation. But then when Favors came in, it blunted that just because he's not as good a player as Rudy Gobert. Then that's not a, that's not you know on either end of the floor and so Gobert's gravity is a role man his ability to really shut things off around the paint and that is something to watch about these Utah rotations is that when you pull a key starter before other teams do you and I've talked about this with Steph Curry at the end of the first and third that gives them an opportunity to really cook and I thought that the Clippers were able to kind of stem the tide in those minutes yeah I'm very interested to see how a playoff series between these two teams would play out now I mean also worth noting the Jazz Mike Conley he was only available for 25 minutes this is his first game back after the hamstring injuries he looked pretty good um you know mitchell had the 35 points but a lot of that came in that huge flurry late i didn't think he was really getting uh, unbelievable looks he wasn't i, I also thought it's noteworthy that royce o'neill plays 37 minutes and he took one three-point attempt and that again to me is an indication of the health of the jazz offense not being able to get a third defender into the play on pick and rolls or against switches and that's a little bit of a concern you know lou williams had a nice game with 19 points i think like him reggie jackson zubats all those guys could end up in a situation where they're getting their minutes reduced a little bit um, you know, and we'll probably see, you know, Beverly only played 25 minutes. Paul George got in foul trouble. He only played 27 in this game. But I think you could see if this series ends up being a long series between these teams. Zubots maybe just not even playing at all. And they just have Ibaka and Marcus Morris be their centers down the end just because Zubots makes it so much easier for the Clips to be defended. And you know, you'll probably see more jazz going after Lou Williams than you did. Terrence Mann has been an interesting part of the Clippers rotation lately. Uh, you know, and Luke Kennard has had this knee soreness. I'm not really clear whether he didn't play because of the knee soreness or because they just went with some other guys. That's kind of, but you, you kind of wonder again of seeing how high level this game was. Like, can Luke Kennard play more than spot minutes in this series? Like, I don't really think so, which kind of yeah. calls into question his acquisition and extension for a, a team that's going to be facing tax issues so how, how did you think Conley yeah. looked I, I thought that Conley like he didn't have the full burst but you know when a guy's coming off a hamstring issue I always I, I always think they're going to be really tentative in their first game and he was to his hand Conley only played 25 minutes but I was more optimistic that he'll be able to you know that that they were judicious with him and that he'll be able to come back and be you know be himself pretty soon yeah I, I thought he he looked quick enough one thing a few other just stray notes uh, on this uh the marcus morris pick and pop when Derek favors was in the game was really killing him i think yeah. that's part of why they ended up putting gobert on patrick beverly but then the clips were able to get downhill in some of these forced gobert to help and that's how beverly was getting those open corner threes at the end uh Clearly, Marcus Morris is the guy for the Jazz to attack. The Jazz, as a lot of people, including Andy Larson, have noted, have had more success lately against switching defenses, including the Celtics. But Kawhi made this point after the game that the Clippers have, in their starting lineup now, five guys who are basically 10-year veterans. Kawhi is the least experienced guy. And so they're not going to have scripts. They had one where Mitchell got a dunk in the fourth quarter. But overall, they're not going to screw up. They are generally, with the switching defense, defense are going to be able to make the jazz go one-on-one the jazz don't have like 
the type of shooters and off-ball movement the way the Warriors do to actually induce some mistakes. They don't have that guy you're terrified of like Steph, and they don't have that guy that you're going to force to put two on the ball on it in pick and roll as good as guys like Conley and Mitchell are. You know, maybe if Mitchell can get hot the way he did against denver last year then maybe that changes but you know that's that's asking a lot well, against it's, a team with and, the clippers, and, like the clippers and it's gonna be harder to get going when you're facing much better defensive personnel like that's just i mean some guys are incandescent and can do it a couple other stray things for me you can, if you have more you can obviously get back into it i yeah. loved there was a play when lou williams wrong-footed donovan mitchell and got to the basket like mitchell just expected him to go left and lou just cut back to his right and just got there it's just lou williams is he has those moments of brilliance where it's just like even good defenders and Mitchell is inconsistent can do that. And also a, a word I use a lot, but it's for a specific purpose is undeniability. And like the idea that if you're doing, if like somebody can be so good at what they do that even if you try to stop, you can't. And I thought that there were times in, in the Friday game when Kawhi's mid ranger was that, where it's just like, there was that one where he took a fadeaway where he never even really looked at the basket until he was almost ready to shoot the ball. And Kawhi overall, you know, 10 to 24 from the field, 29 points on, let's call it 29 shooting possessions. But he had a couple of moments where you're just like, oh God, if he brings that, let's say that happens 25% more of the time in the playoffs, they're going to be such a tough out. Yeah, and uh, this is an interesting stat. Uh, Kawhi Leonard, for the season on tightly contested twos, 10 feet or more. So this tightly contested is uh, a defender within two to four feet. So, you know, that could be a good look uh, for these guys. He's 35 of 89, so a little bit under 40%. Hasn't been as unbelievable as some of the top guys. I, I focused on that a little bit. Uh, well, there's some other interesting ones. And it, here's another indication of that health of the Jazz offense. I mentioned that they only took the seven corner threes, which is not a terrible number for most teams, but they've been doing better. The Jazz only got 15 catch and shoot three-point attempts, and that's out of their 34, 34 attempts. So the more off the dribble threes than catch and shoots and they were three out of 15 on those they usually would shoot a, a little bit better but that's that's not good enough like the, they are averaging right now 21 wide open threes per game which are generally going to be catch it and shoots and you saw them very aggressive a lot of, in the shot clock early like just coming down jacking threes like it wasn't even Clarkson like Conley Donovan Mitchell like Mitchell had a couple were, yeah yeah where they're just gonna like and I mean I'm not saying those are bad shots for them in this specific context of this game it's more just yeah maybe you should be worried if that is a good shot uh, for you and they the Jazz ended up with a respectable offensive performance but again that was a lot of that was the huge flurry late where they scored you know whatever it was like 20 points in the last three minutes of the game um let's uh, take a quick break here and then we will return that was a long time 10 minutes on each of those teams but let's uh we'll get rolling here after this Man, I just love American Giant. Just an amazing clothing company. I was reminded again of how much I love it when I drove from California to Montana over the All-Star break. And you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold, particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas. You're like, well, I don't want to wear like my jacket in the car, but then I get out to fill gas. I'm going to be freezing. But the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm it's not too hot as well so i was able to wear it in the car not be too hot step out of the car and still be warm enough when i was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that i didn't feel like i needed my jacket even when it was cold outside these things are amazingly durable i proposed to my wife wearing an american giant hoodie in the grand canyon almost seven years ago i still own that same hoodie i still wear it constantly and american giant has since 
spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us anyone who's seen our youtube videos knows that i don't wear formal stuff all the time so when it's time to dress up rather than dress down i highly recommend inochino they were the official outfitter of my wedding i got my tux from there all my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well i felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly because when you go somewhere else you're not going to get something that's made for you so why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you and not only does indochino have the suits that made them famous but now they've got everything blazers pants women's wear outerwear designed and made for you hundreds of high quality fabrics to choose from european wools linen cottons tons of colors tons of patterns you can customize things like the lapel the vents the pockets and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style level up your game with indochino go to indochino.com use the code capspace using our capspace we talk about all the time here on the program you get 10 percent off any purchase of 399 dollars or more that's 10 percent off at indochino i-n-d-o-c-h-i-n-o indochino.com and don't forget that capspace code to let them know that you came from us all right, back down to the bottom of the alphabet here for the San Antonio Spurs, 16 and 11, but have yet to play since Valentine's Day. Uh, they have had a COVID-19 outbreak due to both contact tracing and positive tests. It appears uh, that they have not had the eight players uh, available to play. The does in the league overall is being more conservative about that. The Spurs are 3-1, and one, though, since uh, we last checked in on them. 11th in net rating is plus 1.5, 19th on offense, which is below where they've been these last couple of years, but up to 5th, Danny, 5th yeah. on defense. Uh, and they project for the 7th seed with 40 wins, 70% chance the playoff for Raptor, 73% ELO, which is uh, surprising that those are both as close as they are. And well, I mean, a part of that is that they have played well, and they're playing well right now. So, I mean, you could see why the models yeah. would be similar. And so, as a kind of as a rough estimate, uh, the, the league is kind of thinking about things a little differently now. When the Wizards had their outbreak, it was about two weeks between games. And so, if that holds for San Antonio, that'd be about another week. And they'd have three to four games before the All-Star break. We'll have to see if that actually holds for them. And a notable thing for me, I think this is a good place to start, is that the Spurs are overall, they're five and four with Jakob Pertl as the starter, but they're five and one since he took over in this time with LaMarcus Aldridge's extended absence. Remember, they were missing some of their key players early in the year, and it's not like they faced a murderer's row in their last six, but San Antonio is taking care of business, and you and I have talked a lot about if your goal is to make the playoffs taking care of business against whomever is on the table is extremely important. And a big part of that is also that 
with Pirtle in the starting lineup, and it's not just him, there are a lot of things that are going incredibly well for San Antonio. Their starters aren't getting worked as t- as much as they have been other years. You know, like there was that, that usual Spurs story of the starters lose a little bit of ground, the backups make it all the way up, and it's can they hold the lead at the end. But now they're not losing as much ground under the starters. And so then if the bench can do well, then they're winning these games. Yeah, and Jakob Pirtle has been a big part of that. And statistically i mentioned this last week has been one of the best rim protectors in basketball maybe the best i think he's holding opponents shooting layups within five feet of him that he quote-unquote contests to the lowest percentage of any big in the nba that doesn't make him the absolute best rim protector but certainly you know is uh that's something that's a concern in that set where the warriors played them back to back you know one thing that they emphasized you know i talked to some of their coaching staff like what adjustments did you make in the second game having played these guys two games around one of these things they said they emphasized was do not challenge Pirtle at the rim. Like try to draw help and then kick out because he is really difficult to score over there. Uh, the other thing they emphasized was not letting Dejounte Murray get eight steals. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, interesting. Interestingly enough, I, well, I mean, they said, "Hey, you know, don't throw loose passes when he's around." Um, and, and they did much better the next game. They only had one steal. But anyway, this is the Spurs section, and you know, Pirtle. I, I mean, if I were an opposing coach, he's shooting twenty five percent from the foul line. Like, I would seriously consider going to the hacko with him because they really are going to be a different team defensively when he's out. You know, because they really have to go with Trey Lyles or Rudy Gay or Drew Eubanks at center and you know i think he's still shooting in the 25 percent range um yeah and but, so like yeah. i was trying to get a proxy for not necessarily the spurs starters but like some of those key groups and murray and Pirtle together plus 14 net rating for the spurs so far uh derozan and Pirtle, i think it's about plus nine and in those minutes i, I mean was one of the ideas that i've been struggling with with the spurs over the last couple of years is we tried to identify their young core that was the rising of Derek white murray being out everything else was okay what are their calling card's going to be and of course not turning the ball over has been a real calling card for them over the last couple years DeRozan is helping that and he might not be around forever but with those lineups the things that are really standing out they're still not turning the ball over but they're forcing a ton of turnovers 18.4 percent of opponent possessions when Murray and Pirtle are there together that eight steal game is a part of that but there's a lot of other minutes too and they've been rebounding while not fouling those are two hallmarks of teams that have play a play a good rim protecting big Milwaukee that's part of what was so strong for them them. And so, like, basically, I've been kind of working on this idea that the maybe not the end game, but let's call it the mid game for San Antonio is protect the rim, force turnovers, maybe not at that extreme level, you know, like you can get in something like that and have a, you know, a, a run of the mill or better if you can get there with DeJounte and everybody else. If you can get there, awesome. And that, like, that core idea, if you have a good bench, that's good enough to win you a ton of regular season games. No, I, I think so. And another guy who has been a, a part of these groups, despite being maligned and not contributing that much to winning basketball, is DeMar DeRozan. Now, it is kind of odd that he's like considered so much more in the all-star conversation. Ho- hopefully, I, I mean, this is this would be a bad reason for him to not be, that just like they haven't played during this period where the coach is going to be voting. So he's out of sight, out of mind. Uh but his stats are uh, pretty darn similar to, to last year when he wasn't considered remotely in all-star consideration. Yeah, I mean, his his true shooting is the same to the, I think that's the thousandth place, uh, 60, 60.3 if you want to make it a full percentage. Um, it is There is a change for DeRozan. This is something we've talked about before in the show. He's distributing more and scoring a little bit less, but the overall kind of role in the offense is about the same. 
And hilariously, not only is the Spurs net rating with DeRozan on the floor basically the same, out negative two, but their offensive and defensive ratings are almost the same. When you think about the personnel changes that have happened and everything else and DeRozan's role within it, it's just kind of funny that they're still kind of this, they're still overall the same team. I'm not saying DeRozan's taken the same shots or anything like that. He's also, DeRozan, taken more threes and a couple other things. But it's just, it is interesting that because the Spurs are doing so well, and DeRozan has been an important part of that, I think there's also this challenge of, you know, like in a team effort, you want to give the credit. I mean, the Spurs are 16-11. You want to give the credit to an individual player. And an easy place to start is the most famous player that is playing well. But I think that, you know, in certain circumstances, that does a disservice to the coaching staff that's doing such a good job and all of the other players. I mean, it has been really impressive for San Antonio. So I I don't I don't think of DeRozan as an all-star. I don't think that he's been playing at the level of one of the top 12 to 15 players in the Western Conference. But San Antonio has been great. And I'm thrilled with their story. Yeah, and worth noting in his defense, plus 4.5 net rating, and they are 108 defensive rating, which is right in line with their overall season numbers, actually better uh, overall than their overall season numbers, uh, with DeRozan on the floor and no LaMarcus Aldridge. So, uh, and they continue to never turn the ball over, which he is obviously a a big part of and you know there are it, it is funny like there will be these games where he just takes like six seven eight shots sometimes and and other guys have it rolling Derek white a little early to talk uh, about him i think he's starting to come into his own a little bit more uh but we'll have to save that until a later time here let's talk kings 12 and 17 oh danny do you remember those halcyon days when the kings eclipsed 500 and were 12 and 11 they are now 0 and 6 since then and their overall the rest of their overall stat line is uh indicative of a 12 and 17 squad yeah i mean they're the fourth worst net rating in the nba negative 5.8 11th in offense and dead last in defense 538 projects them to finish 13th in the west with 27 wins and two and three percent according to the two 538 models and one of the driving forces behind this skid has been the absence of Rashawn Holmes. They they had three straight losses when Holmes was playing, but he did look limited. I think it was the game against Orlando I watched a little bit of, and he didn't look quite right. That was the last game Holmes played before he missed these three with a knee issue. And a part of that is just you... The lack of suitable replacements is one one way to think about this. So when Rashawn Holmes has been on the floor, and remember he plays overwhelmingly overwhelmingly with starters, but he also plays against starters. The Kings have outscored opponents a plus zero point five net rating. Defense has been pretty good, you know, one fifteen point four. That's not awful in any way, shape, or form. But when Whiteside has been on the floor, when Bagley has played center, things have fallen apart. Yeah, do you want to uh, give us the update on the Bagley at center lineups? Yeah, um, actually, it was better in their game on Saturday when Sacramento lost to the Bulls. They had some stronger stretches, but the stronger stretches pushed it all the way to a negative 23.4 net rating when Bagley has played center, 416 possessions, and a 128 defensive rating. And something that I wanted to look into was, is that, you know, personnel? Is that Bagley... You know, sometimes a guy, especially who could who plays some backup center, you know, depending on who's available for the Kings, is that when, you know, like they're getting killed when their 
bad players are on the floor and the starters. Nope, negative 25.6 net rating when Fagley's at center and Fox is on the floor. So they're getting massacred in those lineups as well. And it's a shame. I mean, and, and with Whiteside, I mean, they've they've gotten worked with him defensively on the floor. I think there is some opponent shooting luck from what I remember. I looked at it, but I forgot. I didn't put those stats in. But that is disappointing. I mean, Whiteside for the minimum was something that looked good, but just not having, you know, I talked about 48 good minutes of a point guard play, but 48 reliable center minutes, like we've seen it with Utah and with the Cavs when they were healthy, it makes a world of difference. Yeah, you know, center is... And perhaps this is because it's so easy to find a center that if you don't have an effective one, and especially for this team too, because they really need Holmes's offense yes. a lot, I think as well. Running the floor, which Whiteside doesn't really do, being able to make short floaters if there's a, a trap situation. And he's also obviously by far their best defensive center as well due to his mobility. He's the only guy who really gives Luke Walton the option of playing any kind of multiple schemes defensively but so you know that's a good thought and and i actually you know i was talking to an analytics guy with the team and this is a team that's uh, has maybe emphasized center more than some others and his point was you still have to have two good centers and if you don't you're going to you don't really have any other options right like for example on your team so if you let's say you have a wing and that guy's not any good well you probably got four other outs on your team of wing players that you can throw in there and see whether they'll work or not now my counter to that was yeah but you also have two to three spots you have to fill on the wing and if you run out of those then you're in trouble but it, the point remains that particularly on defense if you just don't have that center and most teams don't have the ability to switch or enough length on the perimeter to really protect a bad defensive center that now that guy is just going to get attacked and it could really kind of torpedo things you know we saw that for example with the jazz last year just not having that second center and really struggling particularly in the playoffs and and early in the year to find something and so you know if, if you yeah you might it might be easy to find a center but if you don't have a backup center that that could be more damaging than like not having a backup wing i, I don't know if i agree with that i thought it was an interesting perspective but uh, the kings are certainly giving a little credence uh, to that yeah and a big picture thought and i don't want to continue to savage dead horses but the kings having a few real holes in their rotation i think that's making life so much harder for them and buddy healed is a capable nba rotation player i don't think of him especially with how little he contributes in ways other than shooting even if those weight contributions have gotten slightly better um he, and then Bagley, I mean, his limitations, he's had some good games, but his, his limitations in terms of scheme and everything else are, are pretty apparent that, you know, I cap, whether it's merit or obligation or whatever, having those guys or not having other players, you know, whatever it is, having them in big roles, it makes, you know, it gives you a narrower margin for error. And the Kings, even when Fox has been playing well and everything else, like that's hard to hard to make it over. And I think that, you know, it's it's a reminder of how important, you know, having all the phases for team building is yeah it, you know the bright spot of course uh, has been deer and fox uh, and we don't need to spend too much time uh, on him here but uh you know it's uh that's that's at least the bright spot which should be acknowledged uh, the way he's played the last 15 games he hasn't dropped off even though the, their winning streak has abated yeah i mean fox had a little bit of a slow start to the season but in the last 15 26 and eight 26 points eight and a half assists 
And if, you know, you, you always run into issues, and you and I talk about this a lot, of arbitrary start points and end points. You know, so like, it's, is there reason to believe that these 15 games are more predictive than the start of Sacramento season? Eh, not necessarily. But he I, he might have been dealing with some physical stuff. He has looked much better since then. And if, let's say, these 15 games, if that extends to 50 games or 45 or whatever, then I think at that point we can have the real all-star conversation and, and talk about Fox. I don't think he's there yet, but we've seen glimmers. I think that there have been some truly excellent performances during this run and being being the guy who, you know, sets the tone for them offensively and he has some defensive tools as well that are exciting. So I like I, I am very encouraged by where the Kings could be going. And like, I mean, I picked their over for a reason, but it is like this, this last couple weeks has reminded me of how hard, how hard it is to get there. And it's funny with the Kings and Spurs being there. And you think about all the functional depth that San Antonio has. Yeah. And I think it's reasonable to start talking about Fox as being in the same league as Booker and Donovan Mitchell. I mean, he's just not quite as versatile a scorer as those guys. You know, we've seen those guys at least. Well, I, I guess we haven't seen Booker in the playoffs, hilariously enough. I guess he, he at least was in the bubble. But, um, you know, I, I think it's reasonable to talk about him in the same breath uh, as those guys. Uh, and even if he continues to play at this level, though, and he's kind of, you know, even a, a lower-end third-team All-NBA candidate, they've got Halliburton and, you know, Harrison Barnes is having a nice year. We'll talk about that uh, at some point in greater detail, I'm sure. But when you think about this team in the long term, there just isn't that much reason for options, even with Halliburton and Fox if you want to say all right Halliburton he's like 16% usage so far he can expand his usage to be their secondary playmaker so they kind of got that aspect taken care of what I would love to see is you know healed either off the bench or on another team because it's too difficult to play him Halliburton and Fox together and do anything defensively Harrison Barnes is a better four than a three he's been playing the three when they've been fully healthy Bagley to me just you know, I think this year makes it more likely than not that he is isn't going to be a quality part of, of this team's future as a major player and then Rashawn Holmes who yeah all right if, if you could tell me that Rashawn Holmes and Harrison Barnes are going to be sticking around for a while or they were a couple of years younger then I'd feel pretty good about that four-man core and you still would have to find a three which is super hard to do uh, but you at least would have you know kind of like the Sixers your team would just make more sense building around the guys who are actually good and trying to accentuate their skills as opposed to with healed and and bagley who are soaking up possessions and also not stopping anybody defensively but holmes is gonna be a free agent i mean they'll have uh early bird rights on him they could that would hopefully be enough uh, to re-sign him um I will, I, I will say I will say this just as a stray thought. Yeah, Rashawn Holmes running the floor next to Lamelo Ball could be intriguing. Oh, oh, in uh, in Charlotte. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He would. That would be. I mean, Charlotte. Cody's granted, always playing really well for Charlotte. Granted, too, like, granted my my bad. success rate on sending young or youngish bigs to the Hornets is not going well right now because they didn't take Christian Wood. But I mean, they're, Dude, they're having, yeah. I mean, could you imagine if they had just like paid up for Christian Wood this offseason? I, I mean, I get that they're actually they're probably better with Hayward but Wood is also younger. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, the Kings will not have cap space this off season, most likely. So yeah, I mean, I, you would think that early bird rights, you know, which would, would end up paying Holmes, you know, they, they could offer him in about a $50 million a year contract or sorry, no 50 million <laughs> over four year contract. Jeez. Um, but you know, again, do you, you maybe you don't want to invest that much in him being going into his late twenties and at, relying on athleticism player. And, you know, so they just, they still have a lot of work to do, even with having Fox. 
Hawks and Halliburton there let's move to the 18 and 11 Blazers did lose on Saturday to the Wiz at home which was disappointing but uh, that stopped a, a nice win streak for them they are six and one since last 15 and 60 but plus 1.1 net rating is 12th in the NBA they've outperformed their point differential quite a bit we'll talk about why in a second fifth on offense 117 28th however on defense they project for the sixth seed right now 41 wins 85 percent chance of playoffs per raptor 78 percent per elo and it's kind of what i was thinking about for them just in the overall sense they haven't played at this level yet but arguably two of their three best players have been out nurkic maybe hasn't proven that he's back at that level yet after the injury but uh you know he and cj should hopefully be back in relatively short order after the all-star break they they aren't going to probably continue playing at the level that they've played at recently they've uh, ripped off some close wins uh, before the break but they've already banked these wins they're seven games over 500 if they can kind of stay around this level you know maybe go 500 between now and the break those guys come back maybe they can really kind of get in the mix with phoenix and denver in that group uh behind the big three utah and the two la team yeah so are, are you asking if the game that you and i are doing for nba league pass on monday is a potential yes. first round playoff preview i mean we have suns against blazers that game is at nine eastern six pacific if you want to watch really excited about it and i i think the answer is is potentially tentative, yes. I mean, slotting some of these guys down in the rotation, you know, will help and having having more functional depth. I don't think CJ is going to replicate what he did over that first like 13 games of the season. But, you know, it'll add some depth. It'll 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 allow Terry Stotts to theoretically excise some of the weaker spots in his rotation. Um we'll see if that actually happens. I actually wanted to oh so I'll give you your thoughts on that, and then I want to do a stat for them. Yeah, I mean, it, it all depends, I think, a, a lot on Nurkic and what that starting lineup looks like defensively. They were a little bit above average, but obviously they struggled with their bench defense. That's continued to be the case with, with Mello and Cantor out there. That's been a big problem uh, why their offense is uh, is 28th. And, or, I'm sorry, their defense uh, is 28th. So, uh, yeah, go, go ahead and uh, give us that stat here. Okay, so you had, you had mentioned that you wanted to go into Damian Lillard's crunch time stats. So I wanted to go through through the players that have the highest usage 10 plus games in clutch situations so that's uh, within five points within f- the final five minutes per yeah that's how the nba the nba stats does it so i wanted to go through these are the top guys in usage in clutch time situations and i wanted to go through their true shooting i thought that, so i'm just going to go straight this is from the top in usage is shea gilgis alexander someone we're going to talk about a lot soon and then we'll keep on moving down they'll be in order shea 60.5 true shooting d'angelo russell good. 46 uh, Levine, 55. De'Aaron Fox, 55. Bradley Beal, 50. Luca, 59. Steph, 65% true shooting. Joel Embiid, 64. Kawhi, interestingly, 45% true shooting. Yeah, Clippers have uh, underperforming their point yep. differential in close games again these uh, this year. Jokic, 56. Damian Lillard, 83% true shooting. <laughs> what, what kind of usage is that on? 37 percent oh that is that is just batch I mean, and, and like, some of these that's teams, it's he, inconceivable he, he did it again against dallas a, a bit ago and that, that ridiculous game against the bulls as well and so yeah that's how you get to this crazy record that they've had he's just uh, been absolutely unstoppable and i mean you know at that point obviously you don't expect him to do that for the rest of the year but at, at that point you might as well just like go double team immediately get it out of his hands and everyone else can play four on three um 
just a, a few other interesting rotation guys wanted to give a little bit of a, a summary on where these guys uh, are at uh, nasir little uh, has played little so far only 146 minutes but uh his shooting at least in that time it has come around he's 11 of 19 from three not a crazy attempt rate he's around five attempts per 36 minutes uh, yeah, but you know at least he's been efficient i think you'd like to get a little more of a look at him and see uh, if that's real maybe that's uh, another one of these success stories remember little lost a bunch of weight uh, with COVID 19 right at the start of the year so he's gonna get eased in uh, carmelo anthony is second in the nba he's taken the second most attempts that are basically contested two-point jumpers man within two to four feet of you per the nba tracking data and he's shooting 34 percent on those he's taken 90 of those this season they still go to all these isos for him that's uh, what generates those and i at this point just about anything it would be better offense uh, unless he's uh being guarded by chumo kiki and and getting fouls up chumo was uh very good against the warriors in that uh, orlando comeback so th- that's an interesting one robert covington couldn't hit a three to start the year he's actually back up to 33 percent again but only 5.1 three-point attempts uh, per 36 minutes it's actually lower than you'd expect that's a uh, lower than he's been since very very early on in his career in philly harry giles has looked okay but he's only got 49 percent true shooting and that's not good enough for a big rodney hood similarly really struggling this season he, they're still trying to get him going at times but uh he is 42 percent true shooting 4.5 per doesn't make it up uh, on defense he's played almost 500 minutes now which is just way too much uh, at this point uh gary trent uh, has been starting uh, that's definitely been a, a part uh, of the resurgent he is uh, third on the team in minutes plays uh, I recommend reading Seth Partnos back and forth with Jason Quick talking about Trent uh, and his defense, the Blazers' overall uh, defense. And I think that's uh, that's all I've got on these guys, unless you got anything. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes, and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial. They're 10 to 15 year warranty, depending on the model. 
And there's never been a better time to try a Helix Sleep mattress because they are offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace. Easy to remember slash capspace. We talk about it all the time here on the program. That's helixsleep.com slash capspace. This is their best offer yet. I can attest to that since I've been working with them for nine years. And it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. Else? No, I, I think that's all we need to do. And we can go to the aforementioned team that the Blazers are playing in that league pass game, the Phoenix Suns. The Suns are a robust 19 and 10 on the season, 6 and 1 since the last 15 and 60. They're sixth in the league in net rating, plus 5.4. They're actually, so they're sixth in the NBA in net rating, and they're, I believe, per 530 or for cleaning the glass, they're actually outperforming their net rating, just that that's how good they've been so far. Eighth in offense. Sixth in defense, 538 projects them to win 46 games, which would be fourth in the West, and it looks like they're going to make the playoffs. Yeah, I, I, unless they have some massive injury issues, it certainly looks like they are on the way uh, for that. And this is shocking to me, Danny, especially after watching this game against the Pels, which we'll use as a lens to also talk about the Pels. Uh, but they actually don't force any turnovers somehow with Chris Paul, Jay Crowder, and Mikhail Bridges all on this team. They're actually 26th in, in the NBA in forcing turnovers. Maybe that's just, a, again, the drop coverage with DeAndre Ayton is the reason uh, for that. Um, but aside from that, they are looking awesome, as you mentioned, that, that six-ranked defense. And they took care of New Orleans and then completely blew out Memphis, ruining Justice Winslow's debut the, the next night where they were absolutely ridiculous from three, two nights in a row. But they did something that has never happened against Phoenix uh, on Friday, outscoring Phoenix 41-12 to 12 in the fourth quarter. But they started up 11, uh, the Pels did, and they lost by 18. That has never happened before, that type of a, a spread. And... The Suns were 22 of 39 from three. And Jay Crowder is such a bellwether for this team, as he was uh, for Miami and the Jazz before this. When he's hitting shots, and he was six of eight from downtown, he was uh, fantastic in the fourth quarter. Uh, and a lot of these were wide open. Cam Johnson was three of eight. They're actually playing those two guys together most of the fourth uh, as the run went on. A lot of that was because one of those guys was being guarded by Zion and... He was crashing into the paint, and the Pels obviously give up a, a ton of threes. Uh, Chris Paul had 19 assists in only 31 minutes. That was two off his career high from back in 07, 08, which was, well, and, was and that's interesting ridiculous. when you think about it schematically. That what 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 OKC is trying to do, but Chris Paul, like you know, trying to protect things against the rim, and Chris Paul's great at finding the road man, but he can also find everyone else too. Well, and you would think the idea they play a little more aggressive pick and roll coverage, and then they have been bringing the wings in to try to create uh cra or uh, crash the paint and force teams to kick out for threes and we'll talk more about that uh, in the context of the Celtics team as well we're gonna spend a lot of time uh, on the Pels here just because I had a lot of stuff on them I might as well tell you about it uh but Chris Paul was just completely abusing their pick and roll coverage trying to get the big up and they go to Zion at center late trying to come back and this is after Jackson Hayes was getting totally destroyed he, he had a really rough game you know, had a game a play where DeAndre Ayton just like ran past him not even in transition and they just threw a pass right to DeAndre Ayton under the rim and Hayes said no no choice but to follow him he just like didn't see his man for some reason uh you know there, there are a lot of those type of plays so here is uh let me give you a stretch as the Suns pull away they go with Zion 
in pick and roll eric bledsoe ostensibly a good defender is back in the game now he's gone chris paul chris paul deandre eight in pick and roll the first time and the pels tried that also against dallas going uh with sign and center and they did it again against uh, the celtics today but with nicola melli who had not played at all uh, next to him first possession of pick and roll eric bledsoe doesn't direct the ball where it's supposed to go chris paul rejects the screen gets in the lane gets a four on three sets up a three next possession chris paul has deandre ayton switched the angle of the screen zion is totally out of position chris paul gets a four on three again third time they finally at least don't lose immediately at the beginning it took one more dribble before chris paul is able to split in between eric bledsoe and zion williamson and get a four on three so they got eight points out of those three possessions and the, the game was <laughs> incredible over. so that's how chris paul ends up with uh with 19 assists and we're also seeing i mean you talked about jay crowder being the bellwether for the suns is that now that they're getting closer to healthy their functional depth is making life a lot easier on them too yeah it is it's interesting they've been starting kaminsky in the keith bogans i think it's kind of more of a well you know we've been winning games why mess with it and kaminsky was awesome from three and that did enable them to play more of crowder and cam johnson together as well which was a good combination for them uh, anything else on Suns, or should I give the Pelican stats while we're uh, Let me do a couple more things. I thought that that lineup with Zion at the end of the third, beginning of the fourth, they do the same thing in the first half, obviously, uh, where he's at center. They, really, they get Brandon Ingram off the floor. They're really doing a lot of pick and roll play with zion and smaller guys screening for him which was so good in that memphis game that we talked about they changed up to put deandre ayton on zion at the beginning of the fourth when they really went into those minutes that's when the suns run started it really was i thought it was really more of a defensive win for the suns and they forced six turnovers in the first six minutes of the quarter a lot of those uh, were jay crowder but it really all started with deandre ayton being able to handle zion pretty well one-on-one he did a good job of not getting screened on some of those plays and he was actually able to wait for Zion at the room he got called for a couple of touch fouls but he can stay in front of him pretty well which uh, a lot of guys can't do Aiden is uh, emerging as one of the better one-on-one defenders as uh, a big his help defense uh, still could get better and that you still have those crazy stat splits uh, with them being way worse defensively when he's on the floor which I don't make too much of I don't um, either yes but they forced Zion into five turnovers overall for the game and I just thought that was really good for the Suns but yeah let's get into those Pels stats we got a lot of Pels talk New Orleans 13 and 17 overall three and five since the last 1560 they're being outscored by 1.6 points per possessions that's 18th in the league strong seventh in offense but a weak 29th in defense we've talked about the opponent shooting and all that stuff before Pels projected to win 33 games which would be tied for 10th so right on the edge of the play-in and Raptor and Elo both have them at about a 30 percent chance of making the playoffs yeah so uh, the Pels did the exact opposite in this game against Boston they trail by 24 midway through the third they come back mostly on the strength of that Zion slash Melly lineup uh, Melly actually had played played a, a three-on-three game before the game to stay in shape but, but was able to uh, play basically the whole fourth quarter and overtime the Stan Van Gundy uh, was rolling with that um the big news was that they finally went to more of a drop coverage early and I thought that with the big and but I thought that Boston is the exact wrong team to do that against and then in their big comeback when it was Zion and Melly on the floor they started putting more pressure on the ball doing more of a hedge not really a a hard trap 
But Boston, to me, they're the team that you want to get the ball out of the pick and roll ball handler's hands because you want to make the semi Ojales and Daniel Tice, who played a lot of four in this game, make him shoot some threes. And the Celtics generate some of the fewest number of wide open three attempts in the league. So go ahead and make them generate those types of plays, particularly when you don't have all three of Walker, Tatum, and Brown on the floor. But they got completely savaged with that drop coverage. They were getting beat two on two by those ball handlers early on, not forcing a lot of threes. And then they switched up. That was a big part of how they were able to come back in this one. So that'll be fascinating to see what the strategy is i mean stan van gundy clearly is just kind of at the reach the like throwing shit at the wall defensively portion of the season right now yeah and speaking of of throwing things at the wall like what what did you like of some of some of those like approaches like zion on switches yeah you know i I did a bunch of work uh, looking at zion before this game and seeing whether that could be a possibility that was something that he was purported to be able to do out of duke i was a little more skeptical of that and never would have worked last year he was just so slow and so heavy i think he it's moving his feet he actually is not bad in some of these plays and a lot of these plays are against some of the elite players in the nba as well they went to that switching for example put him on Doncic a couple of times now again that was another throw shit at the wall because you gave up a buck 43 in that game and you know it's your anything would be better than what they were doing with in that phoenix game where you're just getting split up top and giving up a four on three basically de facto at the start so putting a inferior defender on uh, on a switch would be better than that so i think zion has moved his feet well he's not just getting blown by on very many of these but I think there's actually, there's certain players you can get away with that on Zion and certain that you can't. And for example, De'Aaron Fox, he played pretty well a couple of times. Fox got a bucket on him, but it was after he got the ball knocked away and then just got it back and then went past Zion because he was going for the ball. Uh, you know, and some of these other guys too, just less threatening ball handers, particularly when Zion's out there, I think at center on those second units, you might be able to get away with it more. But the problem is his arms are so short. And yeah. so any player who can get any kind of separation on him can just shoot over. I mean, the guy's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, and he doesn't have really much of a wingspan as well. And all, I mean, this is kind of worth noting too. He's so broad that like his arms don't, like he might have, you know, like a 6, whatever it is, 6'8", wingspan, 6'9", wingspan, something like that. Uh, But he can't actually like get his arms that far away from his body. Like his, because uh, his chest is so broad. That's part of like that wingspan. If you actually just measure how long the arms themselves are you're probably even lower so he really just anytime someone even you know one dribble to the left or or just a quick jab step and pull up you know even guys like you know a bradley beal or something are going to get great separation he's not going to be able to bother their shots at all at this point i mean he he would have to really get to where he can get even closer to them and get even faster moving his feet and i'm not sure that's realistic for him like the big difference between him and someone like jaron green or even pj tucker is those guys have seven foot wingspans and zion just doesn't have that so if it's a guy you can shoot i don't like switching him onto you know chris paul beat him for for a three in the first game that they played I mean, this isn't that many possessions it's like 20 possessions but it, it was there's a real dichotomy there but if you're it's it's a deer and fox or like john wall would be another one i would feel totally comfortable switching him onto john wall so i think that's something that stan van gundy can employ selectively a little bit more than they have so far but you just got to make sure it's not in the wrong matchup where he's gonna get cooked well and speaking of employing selectively the perimeter rotation in particular i mean we've talked a lot about the front court the adams no adams and all that but 
who Van Gundy trusts, who plays, like it does look like Lonzo Ball is the is the at least the player he trusts the most um, in that rotation. But then we've seen like Nikhil Alexander Walker had that hot stretch, but now he, when he plays, he's more playing more as an off guard. Kyra Lewis, the lottery pick this past year, is is getting those minutes, and I mean it it, it has been fascinating. I mean we, the Pelicans have a lot of guys that are worth trying, but it doesn't seem like they're all regular parts of the rotation yeah and the other thing you might consider too is eric bledsoe just seems like such a misfit on this team agreed at this point and i think they really would be better off just starting josh hart in his position and letting lonzo you know then you can get brandon ingram a few more reps especially now with zion being more of a ball handler you i think hart can guard larger players maybe a little bit better than bledsoe can and he, he, while bledsoe has hit some shots this year you know hart is a much bigger threat from three and he just is going to be a lower usage guy like you can have brandon ingram or zion williamson bring the ball up or let lonzo do it and i mean bledsoe that kind of doesn't lead a great role for him but they do really need a backup point guard too as well if you're still trying to win right like lewis really struggled he was 0 for 8 in their game against the suns and Nikhil Alexander-Walker, he got the second half backup point guard minutes uh, over Lewis in this one. But Alexander-Walker is also not, Stan McGunny has specifically said he doesn't really want him playing at, at point guard. You know, he's not quite good enough as a distributor in that role. He hasn't been efficient. So I, I think that just letting Eric Bledsoe be the point guard in the second unit might make more sense. I guess maybe that would also take away from some of these units that they've been doing with Zion at center in the middle part of the half. So, you know, maybe you just have to be more careful or maybe you try to trade Eric Bledsoe. I mean, it really never made sense to acquire him. It certainly never made sense to move George Hill instead of him. George Hill would be a wonderful fit on this team. Um, now, I'm not sure that, uh, and they still have these backup big issues. Steven Adams has missed both these games. We probably should have mentioned that as well. It's kind of a bad loss for the Celtics in, in a lot of ways here. Um, anything else you want to say about these guys? Yeah, a couple more notes just on the Celtics game that were interesting. But No, I, I, could, I could let you go with that. I'm, I'm pretty close to moving on. Yeah, there were three jump balls in the overtime <laughs> that's the first <laughs> time I, I recall seeing that one a lot of like weird rules came into play as well there was a double lane violation that knocked out the go-ahead free throw by brandon ingram just nicola melli was one of seven plus 18 just because he was spacing the floor um and i actually thought he was decent defensively as just a rotator because you know Hernan, he's probably better defensively maybe than Hernan gomez or hayes are just in terms of knowing how knowing where to be and having a little more mobility and just having big man instincts even if he can't do anything against guys at the rim but yeah it's a lane violate on a go-ahead free throw attempt which yeah daniel tice went in first but like hey you can see the ball in, in the guy's hand here uh so he knocks that out it becomes a jump ball they win the jump ball and then it's Ryan sets up Brandon Ingram for a three. This is, this is an overtime that basically won the game for him with about 30 seconds left. So this incredibly dumb play actually worked out for the Pels. Um, there was also a out-of-bounds travel violation, which is not technically a travel, it's just a violation. Uh, the rule is that you can take one step to your left or your right, and Lonzo Ball did a pass fake to try to get the ball in bounds from the backcourt into the front court and dragged his left foot after taking a step with his right foot. So my interpretation was that that should be a, a violation, wasn't called. Uh, well, remember that came up yeah. with, was that Kyrie? It was There was a play involving the Nets earlier in the year. Yeah, I think that I was... Think, again, I, I may I, not have watched that one, but... No, uh, I, I think it was, it was uncalled. I believe it was Kyrie took like three steps on a, on a pass, yeah. and then uh, and then they uh, TLC, I think, missed a shot. I think that was yeah. in that crazy Wizards comeback. Yeah, I mean, and in fairness... 
it's tough to for the referee to be like you don't want the referee looking at the guy's feet there's only three right. of them there's more important shit to look at but and it wasn't too egregious and this is interesting here i mentioned that stat of number of two-point jumpers taken outside of 10 feet with tight covers so defender from two four feet away brandy ingram has already taken 130 of those wow that is 40 more than any other player in the nba and he's in a decent percentage on those 43.1 percent but when you also consider that those don't really unlock any offense for your teammates as you're just kind of working into position on those uh you know there are other players who will get to who are shooting like preposterous percentages uh, on those that where you want to take I, I think they could do with a few fewer of those shots although particularly when he plays without zion sometimes they just they just got to go to that let's uh move on to the thunder yes okay okc 11 and 18 on the season one and six since the last 15 and 60 though as we record this they are currently ahead of the Cavs. i'm not going to say they're definitely going to win or anything like that because we've seen how that can turn out yeah, um, well, they are playing the Cavs. Nah. Um, <laughs> the Thunder are 28th in net rating, outscored by 6.1 per 100, 29th in offense, 14th in defense, and OKC projected to win 26 games, which would be 14th in the West. Probably not going to make the playoffs, but the big thing that we want to talk about this time is Shea Gildas Alexander and Shea was always going to be somebody that you and I were going to watch closely this year because the changes in Oklahoma City remember last year it was the three-headed guard dynamo of Chris Paul Dennis Schroeder and Shea two of those three are gone so it is basically Shea's show and he has really thrived so far 22 points and six assists a game in 23 games before tonight and OKC is 9-13 and 13 when he plays and I mean the the overall top line stats are completely ridiculous 21 per 61 percent true shooting on 27 percent usage and a he's a 32.5 assist percentage which is big but when you think about that shea his assist percentage had never been higher either on the clippers or on the thunder than 18 percent. this is just a massive shift and he is now one of the you know like one of those higher usage not the full heliocentric not like the luca steph curry harden level but in that next tier in a way that he was not before yeah i i think if you look at some of the benchmarks that, that he's hitting which i wouldn't consider arbitrary at all i think these are these are it's a group of 16 players with some pretty good luminaries in there uh at least in terms of the, the volume that he's had not to mention uh how efficient he's been in that group Right, so I used a usage rate, and these are basketball references version of the stats, usage rate over 25% and an assist rate over 30%. And so, yeah, a lot of players you wouldn't, usual suspects, Steph Curry, Jokic, LeBron, Westbrook in that group, and Shea for the first time. I mean, that's way over his assist percentage in other years. And so one way of thinking about that, now you don't want to get sometimes into like offensive rating and some of that because these guys have dramatically different surrounding talent. But Shea, as an individual scorer of those 16 players, players he's fifth in true shooting at 61 percent and when you consider the surrounding talent in terms of quality and also availability george hill's missed so much time horford's missed a bunch of time too it's genuinely impressive and and i mean they're not turning the ball over a ton the half court offense has been you know not amazing but i wouldn't say terrible in shay's minutes they've been abysmal when he's been off the floor but i mean i've talked about some of the limitations of that group before and 
so that led to me wanting to dive deeper into like how how is it really looking how is it going and so i mean the easy thing to point to shay's shooting 38 percent from three but but for me the bigger forces in terms of his individual efficiency which is only a part of this overall story that we'll tell is that shay's getting to the line more about seven threes per 36 minutes and making 55 percent of his twos and you and i have started getting more into that as being a way a real way for guards in particular to up their efficiency is by doing better on twos that can be getting more around the basket that can be making more mid-rangers and that doesn't seem unsustainable to me when Shea is you know he's finishing better around the rim but he's been a better mid-range shooter or at least a more effective one in other years so it's, it's fair fair game to say that that will continue yeah I think it, the fact that he's getting the line more is fantastic that's that's somebody and if you are a guard it's almost impossible to be efficient if you're not hitting threes and you're not getting to the foul line and he's doing both of those which is fantastic he also has a a solid mid-range game as well Uh, what is the play breakdown looked like for him so far here and it's uh, you know i know his pick and roll numbers have been awesome and you looked at some film of that as well oh oh yeah i mean so shay pick and roll uh pick and roll ball handler in terms of scoring that's a little under half of his possessions so far and Shea has been absolutely excellent on that overall over a point per possession remember those are all half court possessions that's really really good and the number that sticks out though I did some you know rudimentary math on it on those Shea takes the ball to the basket 43% of the time and that's a big number by the way that that is a a lot more than you see from most guards and scores 1.5 points per possession as an individual score on those also has plenty of plenty of good assists on that that's insane like that's a really really good rate yeah. they do have the benefit of some floor spacing bigs they you know Muscala and Horford so sometimes Gildas Alexander is facing less resistance but he's still doing an incredible job been very efficient in transition doing well on uh jumpers off the pick and roll uh, over a, a little bit over a point per possession there but remember that doesn't include turnovers and everything else um and then so I watched some film and I, I watched a lot of pick and rolls passes and 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 shots alike and what stood out to me now Gildas Alexander is not he's not the insane like off the dribble shooter you know for threes like somebody like Steph Curry or Damian Lillard of course but he actually the guy like I mean it's a different set of tools but the thing that impressed me the most was his patience and so he would the mix of patience and aggressiveness and I'm not saying they're the same player but like I there were times when I kind of thought of the his his execution a little bit like a young DJ Augustine and I mean Shea's obviously very very different physical tools in the sense of knowing what advantage you have so when Shea had it like you know if he had a seam to the basket he took it damn near every time but if he didn't have it you know he'd string it along a little bit try to find somebody open for a pass try to do something else and a lot of times when young guards get into trouble in pick and roll it's because they're trying to do too much or they know what they're going to do before the play starts and they're not ad- adapting to the circumstances on the ground and maybe the strongest praise I can give Gilgis Alexander is that he did that extremely rarely. Well, and we've talked about this for a while that when you have young guards having floor spacing bigs, either in the pick and pop or just to, to space the floor out, can be a great way to help their development. And Shea's game is perfect for playing with a floor spacing big because, as you talked about, he's going to probe. He's going to, he's not going to just get off the ball to get off the ball, particularly on this team when there's not, not really anyone else. To, 
to pass it to uh, unless they're open and so he's going to continue to probe he's going to change speeds and it's so hard for the big defender in the pick and roll to deal with because you constantly have in your head i got to get back to my man i got to get back to my man he's at the three-point line when can i leave when can i leave and shea gilgis alexander if you leave he's so good at manipulating the pick and roll like his defender isn't going to be able to get back in front of him once he gets the initial advantage and so he's just kind of holding the big there he can set up pick and pop shots or spot ups for the big or if the big's like all right it's under control i can get back no actually it's not uh, under control and so he's just able to extend that moment of indecision for the opposing big in a way that must be very frustrating yeah it has to be and okc has this amazing cadre of draft picks and assets moving forward and in the future episodes we'll take more time thinking about you know guys like darius Baisley and hamadou diallo and how how they're fitting into okc's present and future but shea you know the early returns are incredibly strong stronger than i ex- ever expected really and, and the i'm sure many will credit it to oh he played with chris paul or you know and 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 the coaching staff i think has done a very good job with him but however it happened he's turning into quite the quite the young player and it you know you've talked about how some of the circumstances are favorable but i mean you think about the overall talent level of this team and how a lot of guys haven't been available like i i've been incredibly impressed reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest but let me play devil's advocate here let's see so no that's a good thing uh <laughs> That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. All right, what are the top line numbers for the Minnesota Timberwolves? Oh, boy. Um, so Minnesota overall now for the season, 7-23, and 1-6 and six since the last 1560. They have looked, to me, significantly more competent since Towns is, has been back. That just hasn't translated to as many wins. They're 29th in net rating, negative 8.1, 28th in offense, 24th in defense, and 538 projects them to finish dead last in the East, in the, sorry, the Western Conference with 24 wins, and they're not making the playoffs. They have been more competitive uh, of late. They had that, that rough loss uh, against Toronto. Um, ironically, we actually were going to talk about Anthony Edwards even uh, before this. Give, give you his top line numbers for the season. Edwards, 14 points a game. Almost never turns it over, which is nice to see. 2.4 assists. 43% from two, 31% from three, which has actually gone up. He was uh, in the 20s there. And taking 7.3 three-point attempts uh, per 36 minutes. Negative 7.6 net rating. The Wolves are 2.8 points per hundred possessions worse on defense with him out there. 1.2 better on offense, uh, although both of those numbers are bottom of the league type of levels. When he plays, though, good to see. Well, I guess that that negative 7.6 net rating is is from NBA.com. So it's a, a little bit of a... Oh, there's some garbage time in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I guess that's right. Yeah, cleaning the glass uh, eliminates garbage time. Uh, the dunk from Thursday, or I guess it was Friday, <clears throat> I went back and actually watched the playlist that I compiled at the end of the decade last year to look at the top like 50 or so dunks of the decade. And I think Edwards' dunk over Yuta Watanabe would probably be in the top 10, I would say, from the last decade. Uh, and I watched a bunch of his finishes because his finishing numbers are pretty poor. And he's probably had like four or five dunk attempts 
that would have been as good or better than that over like some real big guys now he, he's trying to scale some like Jalen Braun probably is the, the only other guy who's been like this ambitious as a dunker I mean he'll take off on some ones where he just has no chance but he's like I'm just going for it I I really enjoy that mentality uh but overall the stats uh, around the basket are, are not particularly good right and Overall, Edwards shooting 56% at the rim and 31% on floaters. So, I mean, some of that, I mean, going back to when you and I watched the film of him at UGA, it, it is shot selection. I mean, that he's he's so aggressive. And that aggressiveness, if he can meet it with a little bit more craft, I mean, his body's already, like, great. So it's not, it's not necessarily like, oh, once he gets stronger or something like that. But, you know, there's a lot of adjustments that, that come to playing the bigger, stronger players in the NBA. Um, but you know, some of it is also just trimming the fat, taking, taking some of that out, but yeah, 56% the rim, 31% on floaters. Yeah. And 62 of 135 around the basket in the half court. That's under, under 50%. Now his finishing is definitely going to improve. That's something that yes. almost all young players get better at. Uh, Zach Levine is a, an example of someone who's gotten much better as a finisher with his sort of athletic profile and doesn't really get to the foul line that much though and, and neither does Edwards so he doesn't really seem to have that knack for drawing fouls which generally seems to manifest itself a, a little bit earlier and then also you mentioned how good Shakers Alexander is getting to the line or, or getting to the basket and pick and roll and finishing Edwards is only 18 out of 47 when he takes it to the basket out of pick and roll and really just looking at his finishing a lot of it is just he believes that he can go over and through just about anyone and that's been the case for uh, most of his life uh, but just some of his decisions for example like in that Pacers game he got his shot blocked by Miles Turner three times on just like no hope attempts against uh, the probably best pure shot blocker in the NBA and teams are playing the pick and roll two on two he does have two really good partners to play against in or, or play off of in Carl Anthony Towns uh, there's a lot of Edwards Towns pick and roll that they've been running since Towns is back same thing with Nas Reed who at least can space out uh, and so Edwards is able to kind of turn the corner and a lot of teams will have a, a secondary big come over but he even got stopped by like DeMontis Sabonis there's basically where he's had the most success as with most of the guys is when he can slow down when he can euro step take a little bit of the spring out of the defender he's but a lot of these it's just I'm gonna go up as hard as I can into you no real craft at all he'll try and finish left hand he has a decent left hand but not really much feel for like moving the ball around avoiding the shot block not really much feel for using his body to ward off the defender at this point taken off from really far away and you know a lot of these are also just these ambitious dunk attempts that don't really have much of a chance either so uh he hasn't really figured out how to beat verticality yet as a, a finisher most of the time um i don't know any comment on that anything else that, that's uh, stood out to you i know i, well, I mean it's a crap load but i've talked for a while here i mean his his off the dribble numbers in terms of shooting aren't particularly great either and the the challenge for me with edwards i know you had him you had him in t uh, basically a tier three separate from wiseman i had him in in a tier two with wiseman the challenge that i had in reconciling those two was the idea of what edwards ideal role was on an nba team because i didn't believe that he could be the like the 
key initiator on a successful team. And I mean, he'll be better than he has been so far, but I think that generally that has been true, though the isolation individual offense has been good, small sample size, but he's doing really well there. So it becomes the question of in certain circumstances, well, if it's not this, then what is? And so you can still, secondary creators are extremely important. Maybe he improves enough that he can be a primary. Jalen Brown is a a great example. There are a bunch of them that have happened in, in recent years. I mean, the improvement of Middleton as an overall offensive player could be positive as well. But one of the challenges there is you're going to have to do a lot of other things. Well, maybe that's the isolation scoring. Maybe his, uh, I mean, I would say this catch and shoot jumper is actually better than I anticipated, um, but it's not great yet. Yeah. Well, well, he's not. And granted, a lot of times he's playing as the primary initiator on the second unit, but he's, uh, he's not exactly getting a lot of catch and shoot jumpers. No, no, he is not. And so, so it's the, the idea of kind of Now, there are always players who succeed in surprising ways, but I have found myself getting a little bit more formulaic as an analyst over the last couple years which is like it's a lot easier for me to believe in you if i know if i know that somebody has succeeded in the way that you i intend to succeed and with with edwards that's why i was skeptical a little bit as him as a draft prospect and now but because he's so aggressive the flashes when it works look fantastic yeah, that's true. I mean, his first step is really fast. And I think that's to me, is where he's had the most success is when he does make a quick decision receiving the ball. Like, And that can even be off the dribble as well, where he really just makes the hard attack immediately, right? Like in the Indiana game, he blows by Malcolm Brogdon, who tries to pressure him up at half court. He loves to drive left more. Uh, and that's how they try to set him up for a lot of his drives in pick and roll as well from the right side of the floor going to the middle. But or if you know let's say the defense is like trying to force into one direction if he just takes that and accelerates he's able to really blow by guys like the first step does look pretty good better than it did in college and i think he, he's improved uh, his conditioning uh, as well i think he's lost a little bit of weight from the start of the year and it, you know on wide open threes he's shooting 40 percent. that's only 37 attempts but it, i mean he's taking very very difficult shots overall and you know he's 40 out of 131 on jumpers off the dribble you know he's in that 30 percent range again he doesn't really have an in-between game a, a floater that he can go to he's only 31 percent from that range that's part two of why his shooting at the rim isn't that good because he doesn't really have another option other than just going pell-mell into the defender um he's three of 17 when the defense goes under on him that's a another problem with uh, his pick and roll defense i think he's going to see more of that now with towns as his pick and roll partner because if you can just go under on him and prevent the initial advantage uh, letting him take that three off the dribble is probably something you're uh, okay with the other thing that i think I would like to see more of is and this is this is one where I think his reliance on shooting the three off the dribble and getting to that shot it might just be too early in his career yeah it's possible and you know you generally you don't want to rely on twos off the dribble but that might just be a more makeable shot for him at this point and one where he could use his physicality a little bit more to to create space uh, on short jumpers or maybe even just kind of try to work into the post overwhelm whoever is guarding him physically the fact that he's also i think he's better against smaller players too like the fact that he's been playing a lot of three uh and 
is kind of getting some of the better defenders uh, on the other team on him. It hasn't helped him well, it, that much it, either. It's, it's this idea. I talk about this a lot with bigs, but I think it's actually just as pertinent for smalls, which is which advantage are you, which button advantage are you better? Are you better as, with a speed advantage or a power advantage? And with Edwards, what I've seen is he's better with a power advantage. Um, the other thing too, is just the more dribbles that he takes, the less efficient he gets. And that's true of just about everybody. But you know, some of his ISO stuff, which has looked good uh, on occasion, again, the best situations are when he goes hard now the wolves don't necessarily do him any favors as an iso guy either because you know he's not getting the ball in a triple threat position inside the arc where he can use that quick rip through first step uh, approach at all uh they also usually have rubio standing right next to him and so someone can come off of rubio and and he really is on most of these iso he's, he's not trying to get to the basket he's just kind of trying to create space to get the shot off behind the arc but they're also guys are gapping off of the non-shooting wolves right next to him so on the plays where he is setting guys up in iso it's generally he'll just throw it to the guy one pass away when his man is gapping off him and someone like rubio can then make a play which is not that's not terrible offense uh but he's not very few plays where he's actually getting into the paint breaking the paint and then setting guys up that's something that uh is he's really going to need to improve on uh anything else on him i, I guess uh, his transition passing he can throw these bounce passes in transition that look pretty good overall though his distribution has not been amazing i think that's about all i have other than uh one other thing that may uh, not be music to Wolves fans ears. Oh, you haven't done enough of that in the last couple of days. But yeah, um, I mean, so it's interesting. I mean, the last the last player the Wolves took or the, technically the Wolves didn't take him. Um, I mean, I was Andrew Wiggins. God, I built that awkwardly. Um, I mean, so Wiggins, both these guys got huge latitude in their first year. Wiggins started every game. Edwards didn't, but he's still playing plenty. Um, and Wiggins, 52 percent true shooting. 23% usage. Edwards, 47% true shooting on 25% usage. And one of the big differences, I mean, you brought this up, Wiggins got to the line a lot. That was what helped kind of fuel it. And it's great that Edwards is shooting 80% from the line. Like, that's fantastic. He's at um, 55 to 69, so still a small sample size. But, you know, good that he's doing well. But, yeah, I mean, so Wiggins, I mean, I would say in terms of flashes, I've, I've liked Edwards more when I've seen him. But in terms of, like, kind of overall production, so far he's been worse than Wiggins was. Yeah, and Wiggins, both of the, they all had kind of similar rebounding, block rates, steal rates, all relatively underwhelming for their levels of athleticism. Wiggins actually got on the offensive glass more, which Edwards doesn't necessarily do. Uh, Wiggins, a better two-point shooter, didn't take many threes though Ed edwards they shoot about the same percentage but wiggins actually is only taking 1.5 threes per game that was on a uh a different kind of team in a different kind of era way back in 2014 15 i'm sure they would have had wiggins taking more threes out but yeah i mean really the biggest difference probably is the foul line where we that was probably the biggest thing that wiggins defenders looked at and it's also interesting that wiggins doesn't actually get to the foul line anymore either and, and has struggled to hit his free throws uh, of late as well uh but wiggins uh, basically his foul drawing rate is about double uh, what anthony edwards was um and actually on a, on a compared to the number of shot attempts that they're taking was uh, about triple what anthony edwards was uh and last thing on the wolves carl towns i mentioned that in the limited minutes he had like a plus six net rating now that he's played more 328 minutes he's uh down to negative 1.2 in net rating danny hopefully you don't have this in front of you but would you care to guess who which player who's actually played a reasonable number of minutes
minute is the Minnesota Timberwolves leader in net rating. Uh, part of me wants to say McLaughlin, but he was yeah. I've I've seen a couple of stretches when he played well and they did poorly. But I'm still going to say Jared, uh, say McLaughlin. Uh, Jordan McLaughlin is sixth uh, with Aww. a negative 4.4 net rating. You had the Mick right, though. It is one Jaden McDaniels. He's had some real flashes so far. I want to I want to have more film on McDaniels to, to really do a breakdown on him, but the defense has been really fun. Yeah, it, it has been, and uh, the Wolves are 12.8 points per 100 possessions better with Jaden McDaniels on the floor, and it, it's shown at least the ability to hit some spot-up shots, so he's an, an intriguing prospect. Let's move now to to the Grizz they've fallen to 13 and 13 four and four since the last 15 and 60 got completely housed by the Suns who are on the second half of a back-to-back on Saturday 20th in net rating negative 1.7 20th on offense and they're down to 16th on defense they had been in the top 10 earlier this season uh, that was kind of how they had stayed afloat in the non-John Morant time uh, they do project to finish with 35 wins, a tie for the eighth seed, and 20% chance of making the playoffs per Raptor, and 35% from Elo, which is interesting because say hey they're projected to tie for the eighth seed like how can their playoff odds be so low a couple of ways number one there are just so many teams that are around that area number two you're in the plan if you're the eighth seed uh and they they might also be like you know 0.2 wins behind the other team that they're gonna tie for the eighth seed and so they'll they maybe that means they'll the system projects them to be ninth and then then they're not gonna have as much of a chance in the plan or something but they did at least uh get justice winslow back uh although it wasn't a rosy debut for him yeah winslow came off the bench they started valanchunas tillman melton bain and john Morant, of course and so winslow and jang were their i, I guess you call it their front court that, that came off and so that has led to some interesting questions about just how does jenkins want to run this rotation when they're not only when they're full strength but like and, and winslow he might just need to scale up his minutes i mean he hasn't played in so long but i i don't exactly know and and i i mean i assume jaron's gonna start at to start at the four when he gets back but it's kind of in flux with a lot of this overall like kind of how the grizz want to best do this yeah, I thought it was interesting. We can talk about that in a second in the context of how Justice Winslow was used. Uh, he was 3 of 14 from the field. It definitely struggled with some timing things, as you would expect. Things where he's dribbling into traffic or mishandling or you know threw a pass behind Jonas Valanciunas when he was open, those, those sorts of things. But they did have him handling the ball quite a bit, which I, I thought was interesting. Uh, probably more than I would like to see. There are a lot of self-created plays. He's trying to drive draw fouls uh but didn't really have much lift around the basket that's kind of been a problem for him overall in his career uh but you know looked to be moving fine at least he missed a couple of bunnies around the rim that, that he'll probably make in the future they ran a couple of plays that i liked where they screened him to the elbow and let him uh, triple threat rip through a, an attack that that looked pretty good uh the three-pointer is still kind of this moon ball that's just one of those ones he was aggressive taking it when he was open but uh yeah and then defense i mean the game was almost over by the time he even got in to it like they just got completely housed in the first quarter so i think they it was a good chance for him to kind of get his legs under him i don't know if he'll be featured as much it didn't play a ton with morant so you know if they are going to kind of use him in a little bit more this point forward role which it seemed like they kind of wanted to what would your ideal group be when jaron jackson jr comes back how would you distribute the minutes if you were taylor jenkins 
I think that you want to still have Valanci. I mean, Jaw Jaw point guard. We don't even need to talk about that. We know that's set in stone. I think I'd want to have Valanciunas and Jaron Jackson together at least preliminarily. Now, if if Winslow can get if Winslow can get kind of to a different level, then maybe maybe you could d- do this differently. You could e- eventually maybe Jaron's a five, but I don't think he's quite there yet. And we'll see how his strength, how Jaron Jackson's strength looks after this knee issue. Um. So then, Dylan Brooks presumably at the two, though eventually you might want to have more have have or at least have some different spacing there. I I would love to see Bain play well enough where he could earn that role. Um. But what's interesting is like I've really liked Kyle Anderson so far. I think Winslow, like the the whole idea is that he's the guy there at the three or three slash four. And yeah, I guess so. I, I guess probably the end game is some, or at least the like the or current stage one is Ja, Brooks, Winslow, Jaron, Valanciunas. And then if that doesn't work, at least they have a few other options. Good news, by the way, Danny. It was safe to declare that the Thunder were going to beat the Cavs. They're, they're up by 18 with 39.2 left. Um, You know, and we'll see what Winslow's role is like there was no brandon clark with right calf soreness kyle anderson got a day off for rest against the suns and dylan brooks has had a sore right thigh and he's gonna miss uh, his third game now as well so they really didn't have anyone else they kind of needed to run more through winslow uh, than uh, you might expect uh, them to want to have in the future let's get to the la lakers 22 and 9 4 and 3 since we last checked in on them fourth the nba net rating plus 6.7 down to 13th uh, on offense now although they are still first uh, on defense we'll see uh, and that'll be one of the more interesting things to track uh, in the absence uh, of anthony davis they do project for 49 wins third in the conference they still have a three-game buffer over the next highest team at 46 which is uh, the suns and greater than 99 percent chance of making the playoffs so with the way they're playing so far let's just wrap up uh, what it's looked like since anthony davis went down about halfway through that denver game yeah so i mean and and he missed some time before in those those two okc wins those two overtime wins over okc they got worked by the nuggets narrow win over the over the wolves then they got crushed by the nets um without kd they the lakers were eight of 30 on threes in that game and then they had the close loss to miami in the national tv game on saturday yeah and and yeah go ahead sorry it's been compounded of course by the absence of dennis Schroeder, who is absolutely really their third playmaker and part of why i was higher on this lakers team this season was the depth that they have i didn't think they were going to be pushing incredibly hard and this wouldn't be the first time that ad missed it at least some games here and there but with Schroeder and the health and safety protocols uh it has been he's in contact tracing it's been revealed that he's testing negative so far uh, but could still be a a few more days uh, until he's able to return uh but you know with harrell with shooter like they should be able to withstand this uh, and yeah you know they they are very limited in terms of offense without lebron james on the floor right now they're getting hurt there lebron they just don't want lebron to tire himself out he had to play a lot of minutes in some of these games with ad out uh, you know and like going to overtime against the thunder and uh, games like that uh, that i think they wish they could play a little better and they're starting kyle kuzma now in ad's spot and there's a chance for him to emerge as well i mean they have guys who can do stuff as secondary players i mean you should you would hope that hey the shooter montrez harrell pick and roll on your second unit like should be enough to like kind of keep you afloat when the lebron sits uh and so we'll see i mean it does seem like this ad thing is probably going to sink their chances of catching up to the jazz uh, and 
the Clippers could potentially pull a, ahead of them here. And then at that point, once you're the third seed, then there's really kind of no no real reason to push. And you probably would rather actually be the fourth seed than the third seed, assuming they would rather face the Jazz well, than the Clippers. And assuming they know that the Jazz are going to get first and the Clippers are going to get second, which depending on how that goes, that might not be clear. But, but that also gives you the incentive to push down a little bit so that you can even play the game a little bit. It'd be hilarious if it was against Denver, who knows how to play that game too. Um, but <laughs> I, I think that like kind of a big picture thing for me was like, should we be concerned about the Lakers? And you know, especially when they got crushed by the Nets and in a game that Kevin Durant did not appear in, looked looked a bit, and then started the game against Miami. I mean, they're losing 36-23 at the end of the first quarter. I thought that the, the, the Lakers' defense looked, it looked shaky. They were, you know, Miami was getting into that. And then settled the ship. I mean, part of the reason their defense looked better was that neither team could hit a three to save their life. And that, you know, that oftentimes you like, you think about a defense better when those shots don't go in. But it was true for both teams. So that was a little bit of a, a little bit there, but something that I thought Jeff Van Gundy did a great job talking about on the broadcast. Um, but I, I, I was thinking about throughout was that, you know, Miami has Spo has a lot of trust in his guys, and they're primarily running a switching scheme. But partially due to absences, and partially just due to you know Duncan Robinson in particular being a good enough player, these in the rotation, there were a couple of let's call them scheme idiosyncrasies with the Heat that LeBron was did a great job of attacking. And so really, what that was at its base was Spo wanted to switch, but he also didn't want a Linux or Duncan Robinson isolated defending LeBron. So they were running. I mean, at times it was a double. At times it was kind of like a version of hedge and recover when LeBron when LeBron got the ball and one of those guys cover was screener and LeBron the, the the whole challenge with doubling him or the hedge and recover whatever you want to say is that he's so tall and he's such an unbelievable passer and so yeah it's true like you're reducing the potential damage that LeBron can do as a scorer but you were also just Un- unleashing his ability as one of the league's best passers and I thought it was interesting that you know, made the Lakers they were they were very they were much better offensively in LeBron's minutes not a huge surprise and it was a reminder of just like how even like the, the Heat have a lot of strong links in the chain but even a few weak links can be a real problem yeah that, that I mean the, we've talked about that uh, with the Heat uh, quite a bit so far reporting indicated that they may be interested in DeMarcus Cousins who apparently is not long for the Rockets despite having his contract guaranteed i don't really see what the point is of getting demarcus cousins on this team do you i wouldn't have even seen the point if they hadn't signed harold but they did and cousins i mean you could say that he doesn't have enough equity with the franchise to grouse if he gets marginalized but it's even just a basic roster spot issue that the lakers need to use any roster resources they have to get forward-sized guys to get wings and that that if they're even if it's in a cursory role even if it's getting the minimum even if it's you know doesn't really the there is an opportunity cost and so yeah i don't i wouldn't see that as a good move for them and it's not like that would be oh you know like you and i have been critical of montrez harrell's role on a on on this team in the late rounds of the playoffs it's not like this is going to give them cover to trade harrell or anything crazy like that so it's just it's a hat on a hat Hat on a hat and i wouldn't love it yeah the one thing that he might provide is a little more three-point bombing than they have at a big position that's really the one thing that he's done competently this season uh but you know they they got marquee morris too who is a much better defensive player who can do that i mean cousins is really pretty limited defensively kelly eco the athletic wrote a, a nice piece of why it kind of didn't work out in houston uh which uh, we can turn to now by the way the, we will have more lakers talk 
later this week hopefully i haven't had, get a uh, la focused guest on later in the week but the houston rockets are 11 and 17 and another team we've got a lot of teams on really nice runs and a lot of teams on some really ugly runs uh, as we're starting to finally get a little bit of stratification here but uh oh and six in their last six since we last talked about them they are a negative 1.7 net rating that's 21st in the nba their offense is really really ugly without james harden 107.6 granted because they've also had some injury absences old depot is hoping to come back for them this week uh they are fourth uh, on defense uh, although the numbers since christian wood went out and with cousins starting were really miserable i think that's part of why they wanted to move into more of a small ball approach they project still for 34 wins it's not terrible uh and Raptor has them 25% chance to the playoffs, ELO 31%. But with Christian Wood still out for a while, I don't really see how they're going to score well enough to be that competitive. Um, let's, uh, uh, what do we got here for these guys? Well, so I think the first thing, you you mentioned it a little bit before, but worth kind of working through the DeMarcus Cousins saga is too strong, but just the, the weird sequence of events that happened. So first, Houston guaranteed Cousins contract. Remember, he was... I believe it was lightly guaranteed. It might have been non-guaranteed going into the season. Great success story that he made the team, and then they traded for his former college teammate, John Wall. So after Houston guaranteed his contract, Shams Tranya first reported that the Rockets and Cousins are working on a resolution, which will lead to him not being on the Rockets. And then after that, remember, the, the Houston has missed a couple of games due to the weather issues that have been going on, weather slash power in Texas. So they haven't played. They announced that he is going to be their starter on Monday when they they return to action and so it's a little bit weird but it kind of it seems like what me, my reading of the tea leaves is that they still want cousins on the team until Christian Wood returns or at least uh, a reasonable just because they don't have anybody to replace him and then at that point Wood comes in and then they'll go to those small lineups to in the non-Wood minutes. Yeah, and P.J. Tucker has, has missed time as well. He's supposed to be back on Monday. You mentioned Oladipo. Uh, so I, I guess that makes sense just because they need some bodies. I mean, it's either Tucker or Jay Shantay. Remember, they had Ray Spalding, a guy who I've always liked his bounciness, but he suffered that Achilles injury. He was probably going to play a lot for them. So even if Wood comes back and they move on from Cousins, Wood will be the only center-sized guy that they have on the roster. And so I, I guess... My question is, you know, Christian was going to try to come back before the All-Star break. We'll see whether that happens or not. I, if I were the Rockets, I probably wouldn't be too interested in that. Although, worth noting that the Rockets do not have control of their pick uh, this year. It's part of potentially four teams that it could <laughs> be be swapped with. Uh, what is it? It's uh, Portland, OKC, and the Nets. Um, and I think the the Rockets are third out of four in that pecking order. Uh, however, it works out. Um, maybe I'm wrong. No, wait. Who am I? Okay. Am I okay. So okay. So it's OKC, Miami, Houston. Ah, uh, Miami. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And they they just have Portland's pick uh, a lot of protected. So. Yeah. Do they start looking at trades here? I mean, I would imagine they're going to be further underwater. Um, yeah, I mean, they, they could, as it turns out, they might be just right in there with OKC where that swap wouldn't hurt them that much uh although and miami hasn't been that great either that that's this is gonna be something to to watch here but i i guess the question is you know victor oladipo they brought him in they'll have a little bit of time before the trade deadline again but are they gonna try to move on from oladipo i just don't really get what the front office thinks
thinking is there what Tillman Fertitta's thinking is as far as they want to keep trying to be competitive even I mean I could see them even just trying to be competitive just because they don't have the pick and save face anyway I mean I don't see them getting a first rounder for Oladipo but maybe they could if I think if you can get a first rounder for Oladipo you would probably want to move him as long as you can avoid taking on longer term salary which that may not be possible it may not be permissible. I guess that's probably the uh, yeah. an, the operative way to put it. Yeah, I would be. I mean, the challenge for Houston. I think that if we're if we're running on a sheer optimization grounds, I mean, the pick stuff does really reduce their incentive. But if you can get something for like the way I always try to try to think of this is if you get something for players that aren't going to be a part of your you know your your future, that's probably a good idea. So like if PJ Tucker doesn't want to resign anyway, and somebody gives offers you something decent for him, I think you probably take them up on it. Same with Oladipo, though Oladipo's is a little bit more complicated because if the return is low, you can roll the dice on either his market drying up. And I mean, I don't think this is going to happen to many people. The supply demand problem is is going to be, I think it's going to be a redux of 2020. But potentially, there aren't that many teams with cap space. Maybe he wants to go somewhere that doesn't have flexibility. And so you can get something decent there. The, the kind of the, the situation could be akin to... Philly getting Josh Richardson for uh for the in the Jimmy Butler sign and trade you know they they had to facilitate that to, to make it happen maybe something like that could be there so you could get something decent but generally speaking I think the rule still holds as long as somebody makes you a reasonable offer and there is no guarantee that happens with Oladipo especially when you consider you know he hasn't had hasn't had the season that instills the confidence that he's going to be that guy long term so are you bending over backwards to get Oladipo's bird rights right now yeah it doesn't doesn't seem that way I and Oladipo stats uh, have not been great since he joined the Rockets uh, in 13 games, 48% true shooting and 30% usage. So that's uh, that's not helping you to, to be uh, basically almost 10 points of true shooting lower than league average. Let's get to Golden State here. We'll be, might be a little more brief here on these last few teams. We spent a lot of time uh, on some of these other ones, but the Warriors, 16 and 15, a very disappointing start to their road trip. Uh, they had double-digit leads in the fourth quarter against both Orlando and the Hornets. Uh, They could have pushed it to 18 and 13, they had that beautiful win over the heat but i mean let's let's remember right like the warriors have, have had a couple of lucky wins like the damian lee shot against the bulls like when you're this type of a team things kind of tend to even out and yeah they had what i think a lot of people would say was kind of a lucky win without draymond against the heat on wednesday and then they have uh some collapses uh, against the magic uh, and the hornets uh that hornet game was uh quite a shit show though uh we'll get to that but they are <laughs> they are 14th in net rating 21st on offense seventh on defense though and and that was actually very encouraging uh, against the hornets if they can just get the offense going a, a little bit better they project for 35 wins which would tie for 10th but i mean they're gonna they're right in that playing game morass they had a chance to maybe kind of boost themselves potentially into a little higher echelon lately but weren't able to do it 28 percent chance of the playoffs per raptor and 35 percent chance per elo so yeah i wanted to run through the very end of that charlotte game for those who were not able to watch it it was completely insane and worth noting at the outset for context Steph Curry was a late scratch it appears that he is sick not with COVID just sick and it seems like he would have wanted to play in a game against his hometown team but you know he couldn't so he didn't and so the Warriors are up five with 45 seconds to go Oubre had just hit a shot and yeah hit a hit a big three we'll talk a little more about Oubre in a second here 
So then, uh, so up five with 45 seconds to go, you assume each team is going to have two possessions, roughly depending on fouls. And Rozier just drills a three that I honest, I think Kubrick fouled. I think, I think it should have been a four point play. It was, it was not reviewed. And, um, I mean, not called every time, not like a no brainer, like refs are terrible for not calling it, but I think it was a foul. So then that means it's Warriors ball up to with an 18 second differential and the Warriors do the basketball equivalent of a prevent defense, which the idea, basically the idea is when you're too conservative for no good reason, you just don't get it. So like the Warriors basically yeah, that, just pass. That's what Steve Kerr does uh, at the end of games. It is. A lot of time. And it's it's one of it's one of my criticisms of, of him. And so the Warriors just, the it was it feel, felt like it was more important. Oh, I mean, it didn't feel like it. It was more important for them to run the clock down rather than to get a good shot. So they don't. Oh, yeah. Really, Sorry. I was, I was talking about Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr's defense. In, oh, uh, oh yeah. There's uh, that too. In the game situations there, but right? but, but so um, so the Warriors basically don't get anything, and Wiggins jacks up a, a bad three. Not necessarily like terrible, ter- like oh it's on him. He I think he got the ball with like five six seconds left on the shot clock. Didn't do anything. Took a three. Uh, Draymond Green tipped it out, and Wanamaker, who's in because Steph Curry is unavailable, grabs the rebound. So, like, that's incredible. You know, the very would have been the clock reset. I think it was like a four-second differential or something. And at that point, Charlotte, you know, I, I would say if there's only a four-second differential, you have a really tough decision to make. So what Charlotte does is it looks like they're wrapping up, you know, so Wanamaker dribbles the ball out. I think they're just kind of going to see what happens. And LaMelo Ball and P.J. Washington go over to wanamaker and it looks like they're going to foul but the first contact that happens is lamello ball's hands with the ball so instead it is a held ball and a jump ball which hilariously the refs originally gave to pj washington but it was lamello who did the wrapping up they got it correct before the jump ball jump ball gets tipped jump ball gets tipped i think lamello hit it and then draymond green is is close to it but gordon hayward corrals the ball and falls to the ground and while he's falling gordon hayward is the only guy with the ball but then as soon as he hits the ground draymond green has the ball too and the refs awarded hayward the timeout so that meant that charlotte had the ball down to with i think it was eight seconds left well draymond, and then uh, i mean draymond this is just ridiculous like he's 30 years old he's the vocal leader of the team and he gets thrown out not one technical but two you're up two right now like all right, they like, got was like, the all they got was the ball in a game that neither team was like ridiculous scoring. Yeah, so you're up two, and he got a technical foul, two technical fouls with eight seconds left that allowed Charlotte to tie the game, and then they were able to win it with the, a ridiculous yeah, because, two pointer by because in, instead of being down two with the ball, they were tied with the ball. Terry Rozier hits a hits a fadeaway. Yeah. Uh, oh, and maybe maybe you might want your uh, your best defensive player on the court uh, trying to get. A stop as well with uh, uh up to or or even with the the game tied at the end right that maybe that maybe that could have helped a little bit yeah and and the other thing is like draymond was incredibly angry about it and i, I mean it's hard that's a thing from the layperson standpoint that's incredibly hard to evaluate but you know like yeah maybe that wasn't no the no, I, call. no i'm sorry it's not hard to evaluate it's fucking stupid no and no here's what i'm saying is like even yeah. I, it's hard to evaluate whether the call was correct Oh, so to oh, go ballistic yeah, yeah. over an incorrect call when it wasn't like oh yeah, so like, like how how did you I, I mean the reason they were pissed off is because they felt like they didn't like that's that's the thing they're like oh we didn't get that same call on the other end and the, the two minute report talked about it and they said no actually like the timeout signal when it was made uh with Wanamaker happened after he got tied up and hey the timeout signal for PJ Washington happened before he got tied up well yes it, it's not it's not just oh it was the same call no it wasn't one w- was 
objectively they've reviewed it uh, on video was objectively a tie-up and the other one objectively they called the timeout and, and so i mean that's why they went ballistic they he, draymond green has no fucking clue whether pj washington called timeout as he was tying the guy up yeah and so then that took what would have been a very you know a, a pretty probable win and turned it into a game that the warriors basically had no chance to win in regulation and would have had to win in overtime it didn't even get there terry rozier hits another shot and so that that and i mean you could say it was shocking that they were in that game and much less should have won it with steph curry out but that is where they were and they ended up not taking it so they moved to 16 and 15 well and and you know i i started to get riled up here about you know because where i thought you were going was like oh you know you can't be in draymond's shoes like you know you can't and there's oh no that is not where i was going (laughs) yeah no no i obviously not but like you know that's the excuse for him is oh well he has to like be this riled up he has to have this fire like i mean i can't remember ever a dumber two technical fouls that cost their team more like in that moment with the, like ever yeah because like this right? wasn't like, even this, is- this wasn't even calling calling for a timeout when you don't have a timeout or something like that where it's like the heat of the moment you got confused like he's yelling about a call that was correct when all you have to do is just play one more possession and you win and i mean i it kind of reminded me back in the day one of my earliest things at the athletic i mean i started writing for them during the 2016 playoffs which ended up being a pretty interesting time to do so was when green was suspended for game five of the finals and i was going through like it's not just this when he got pissed off at lebron stepping over him it was he tackled michael beasley earlier in the playoffs for no reason and it was the accumulation of of things that got him it's like draymond like there there is this idea that happens sometimes of like oh you know and this it's kind of like the curry throwing stupid passes thing where it's like you can't you can't clean up the bad things without losing something that's good but i think there needs to be a level of accountability for something that is so and i mean we've heard a little bit of this public posturing from the warriors people of like that's just so indefensible and i mean like it i mean it's not as important you know like it's not a playoff game it's nothing like that but that could impact the warriors viability as a playoff team absolutely like there's a pretty good chance yeah the the other thing that i thought was was disappointing was they're down three against the magic the night before and they're trying to get Steph going they were down more and Steph hits a couple of completely ridiculous threes to even like give them a shot at it and you know they try to run a little like handoff play there's just two guys on Steph no one's even guarding Draymond Steph throws it to him Draymond's wide open at the top of the key down three there's two guys on Steph and he hands it back to Steph and Michael Carter Williams played great defense and and forced him into an air ball and stuff Steph is it's that one of the few weaknesses he has is at the very end of a game he just doesn't have the size uh and leaping ability and like the high release like Kyrie Irving to like get off a great shot when there's just limited time um so you know if you give him more time like 10 seconds then he can kind of put a guy in the mix and, and maybe get a little bit more space particularly when the other team knows they need a three like Draymond like you, you're wide open down three like you're not going to get a better look than that like how do you not take that um anyway let's move on to the Nuggets well no briefly I just want to say this oh yeah Kelly Oubre's three-point shooting by month oh yeah here we go December 4.8 percent he was one for 21 <laughs> January 27 and a half percent February so far 11 games 46 percent pretty good uh and I, I mean, I think he's evolving to being like pretty much what they hoped that he would be. And, and I think if he, you know, if they had Clay Thompson, clearly they agreed to that trade before, you know, at least the outlines of it before Clay went down. You know, I think he would be a, a good piece for them. And that matters because. 
we'll see what kind of a contract he can get but if he can prove that he can hit these shots and be more part he's even doing a little bit better job of like looking for stuff and throwing a few back doors although it's never going to be great at that uh and he's been part of a their solid defense so uh, i think him starting to produce a little bit more is actually just more important for next year to where all right we're going to re-sign this guy we're okay paying him eight figures to be our sixth man and you know let clay thompson get some rest at times and you know to be a part of their rotation and also even to go with you know a draymond at center group that has Ubre, wiggins and clay along with stuff that could maybe be a, a really good lineup you know again if draymond and stuff and clay can contribute at the level that you hope that they're going to now we can move on to Denver. What are their fundamentals? The Nuggets are 6-13 and 13 on the season, 4-3 and three since the last 15-60, and 7th in net rating, plus 4.2, 6th in offense, 19th in defense, 538 projects them to finish 5th in the West, 42 wins, and they're going to make the playoffs. It seems likely, and Jamal Murray had one of the most efficient 50-point games in NBA history. Many of those uh, have come in recent vintage but it, give me the full stat line there against the Cavs, who are everyone's punching bag at this point in time. This is on uh, that crazy Friday night. Murray, 50 points, 21 of 25 from the field, 8 of 10 from 3, and 0 free throw attempts at all and uh two assists (laughs) so i I mean that that kind of shot making is crazy i mean to do 50 points on 25 true shot attempts and i I mean i think it's the only 50 point game with no made free throws in nba history i think i saw that stat and that that's completely insane to do that and take 25 shots and average two points like jamal murray what we saw in the bubble last year like he and it's probably like him steph and damian lillard as far as just like the three guys in the nba who can get the hottest who am i missing there i wouldn't say trey young's in that category i think it is just those no guys. no because trey i mean he doesn't trey's not just like kind of a, that type of a bomber um and, and he's relying on getting to the foul line a lot too i mean like uh i mean who zach levine maybe is like a, a rung below those guys if he really really gets it going uh but against the Cavs, it, it didn't take a, a ton for them i uh, got going on some cuts early uh ironically probably his most open three of the night was his first one which he airballed um but the Cavaliers were not equipped to defend him they were putting their wing defenders on Michael Porter Jr and so he had a lot of Colin Sexton on him a little bit of a Coro a little bit of poor Lamar Stevens who also got uh, is uh, their two-way guy who's just not getting uh they kind of put him out there because he's got some athleticism but he's not really there at all either uh then you've got like these two bigs with Drummond not playing who are just drop coverage bigs and so Murray really started roasting that there was a ridiculous stretch of about three minutes at the end of the third early fourth where Murray just hits four threes in a row one of them was like from the left hash mark on the move just a ridiculous one uh he did finally miss one of his his other missed three was like a logo three when they're already up 23 but he he basically had like a personal 11 to 1 run to put the game away uh finally after that that, the Cavs start moving JaVale McGee up further and then he just split the pick and roll and went in that's how he got his last dunk uh to get to his 50 point game 
Um, but yeah, it was uh, pretty much an evisceration. The Cavs not prepared to deal with them. And uh, I want to talk just very slightly about Michael Porter Jr. Wait, and, before, before yeah. we do that, can I give you, because I know you're interested in this. Oh, yeah. Low, low free throw games for 50 point performances. So, yes. yeah, you're right. Jamal Murray, first game with zero free throw attempts. There have only ever been four other 50 point games where somebody made two or fewer. Three of those four before Jamal Murray were current members of the Golden State Warriors. Steph Curry did it twice. He made one free throw against Orlando in 16 and two free throws against Washington in 16. And then Clay in that game against Chicago when he set the three-point record, he only had two free throw, two free throws in that one. And then the only other one, Dana Barrows. Dana Barrows had a 50 50 point game for the Sixers against the Rockets, and he attempted and made two free throws. All right, that's good. Let's save Michael Porter Jr. for next time here, since we're well over the two hour recording mark, and get to the 13 and 15 Mavs. Uh, They also have had some postponements uh, as well. Three and one since the last 15 and 60, negative 1.9 net rating, 22nd in the NBA. They are up to ninth on offense and defense they are a putrid 27th 116.5 they do still project for 35 wins to tie for the ac that might be 36 actually uh and the raptor playoff odds like them a lot better 43 percent that's the more player focused one elo playoff odds only 24 percent given how they have been playing and it's really interesting because the Mavs got a ton of press last year for being one of the best offenses uh, of all time. Luka Doncic, uh, amazing uh, how he was powering this, and now they're down to ninth this year. He, he must be a lot worse this year, right? Not particularly. I mean, it's it's a cruel twist of fate that you and I, in particular, were pushing really hard last year for Trey Young to get All NBA consideration, and Luka's, of course, in the All NBA conversation. But because the reasons why his team was not performing up to the caliber was because they were struggling defensively and they were struggling offensively when he was off the floor. Now, the player who was traded for Trey Young, Luka Doncic, is suffering those exact same problems. The The Mavericks have a great 117.4 cleaning the glass version of offensive rating when Luka is on the floor. That drops more than 10 points per possessions to 107 when he's off the floor. And they're abysmal on defense. And I think Luka has been much better on defense this year when I, when I watch him it's just all of this other stuff and so the idea of like value provided you know the the extreme heliocentricity of dallas's offense luca's individual scoring numbers are getting around to the level that they were last year is you know like that are part of the argument is actually pretty similar but because the team is doing much worse and because all of these other factors he's basically a non-entity in that and will be a non-entity unless dallas dramatically improves from here yeah uh so the defense uh, not uh, so good, and a, a big part of that uh, has been the struggles uh, of Kristaps Porzingis defensively. Yeah, and I had believed, you know, I wasn't worried about the Mavericks in the early going because it was just, you know, like, okay, Porzingis isn't available, and let's see what happens when Luka and Porzingis can play together when you think about the the unusual strengths that Porzingis has and, you know, the, the, the unicorn status that he can protect the rim. And so, okay, now those guys have played over 700 possessions together using a garbage which I'm filter. The good news is offense has been great again. 120 offensive rating when Luca and Porzingis play together. Not any unsustainable shooting. They're just a really, really good offense. 
The problem is they have a 120 offensive rating and they're being outscored when Luca and Porzingis play together. Oof. Yeah, that that is really awful. And I mean, if, if you look at the numbers, obviously as you watch them, it looks like Porzingis is just like absolutely rooted in cement from a movement standpoint. Uh, and that he's just not really able to get into position, but he also isn't even really bothering guys when he is in position and the stats really reflect that. Yeah, and so, I mean, if you want to contextualize that, so I brought up 120 offensive rating, 120.7 defensive rating. That is eight and a half points worse than last year. And when you consider, you know, we talked about some of what excited us about the Mavericks this year, that they had this different defensive personnel. Like, sure, some of that is unsustainable opponent shooting. Opponents are shooting 42% from three in the Luka Porzingis minutes. That's not going to continue just because it doesn't. But the stats protecting the rim are abysmal. I mean, opponents are getting there a lot, 36% of the shots, and they're making 67% at the rim when those guys are on the floor. That is really, really bad. And that is, of course, something that teams can do more to control than opponent three-point shooting. And potentially the most insane stat, because I'm like, oh, well, let's see, you know, Kleba missed a bunch of time. And it's true that Kleba played some when he wasn't 100%, just like so many players this year. So I'm like, oh, let's see how the Porzingis, Kleba, and Luka minutes look. It's 246 possessions, but opponents are shooting 79% at the rim when those three guys are on the floor. I, that's almost impossible. Yeah. That's, I, I mean, I'd love to know like how many of those are just straight up uncontested plays. And so uh, for the Mavs, you know, early on, we're like, all right, they're going to be fine. This is even before Porzingis came back. But obviously they've made this investment to improve defensively. And yet, you know, they've had so many discontinuities and Porzingis and Kleba in particular have not looked like themselves. Josh Richardson is looking like his regression in Philly was no fluke and on both ends frankly so now you're at the point where it's not just ah eh, we haven't had our team together and eh, you know it, it, like this hasn't been us out there that luca's playing better as well and they they're they are doing better at least the offenses come around but now you're at the point where we just need all these there's a lot of guys who need to play better on this team and they also don't have that great bench scoring you know jalen brunson hasn't really been able to be the engine of the attack trey burke has been a disappointment so far this year in terms of what they've done with him on the floor and so now we need i mean porzingis and kaliba to me are the the two biggest ones and porzingis is you know the biggest biggest one and i have some faith that these guys will be better but are they going to be better enough from what we've seen right now to be playing at a level like the third best team in the west like we talked about clearly they won't be as good as utah i think that's obvious can they even get back into that phoenix denver type of range portland type of range like even you know i got you gotta have some skepticism there and if uh porzingis isn't gonna be that guy we've talked about some of the concerns there uh one thing that actually has been working pretty well ironically enough particularly for this reporter is the Kristaps Porzingis post-up game and really what the reason that it's working now to me and he may not be able to continue to do this but he's just not trying to like back guys down and be tough anymore and a lot of coaches particularly at lower levels are like hey like if you post up you got to back down you got to get fouled you know you got to go strong etc etc and particularly because Porzingis he's often posting up against a mismatch there's this desire to do that but he's not really that strong he can't get low guys can get underneath him so now basically whenever he gets the ball in the post he's essentially he might take one quick dribble and shoot a jumper or he'll just turn and shoot a jumper immediately over the top of the guy and he's 
done a good job of kind of particularly with the way that shooters are protected to where he can kind of just shoot over the guy without being undercut and he's been awesome uh, on those about a little over 70 percent of the time according to synergy he will just take that jump shot immediately or within one dribble out of the post he's not trying to get close he's only taking a hook shot twice all year you know he's not going to these power moves and the good thing about that too is you're not turning it over so he's right around a point per possession but one of the big problems with post-ups is you get double teams it's tough to get the ball in especially if it's deep position you might try to lop it up it'll get intercepted you take a dribble a guy digs in knocks it away but if you just catch the ball and you're seven three and you just turn over the guy and shoot you're not going to turn it over at all and you can get a point per possession in the half court where the Mavs are again of course spending far too much time then that that looks a little bit better so i think that is actually something that's reasonable for them to go to against a mismatch as a counter every once in a while they're going to switch that luca kp pick and roll and that will do it for today thanks so much for joining us a reminder if you made it this long thank you for uh portland and phoenix uh, tomorrow night for the nba cast uh, on nba league pass digital or you can just buy the game uh, as well and we will be back tomorrow we're gonna actually hope to have two guests on this week interesting guests uh, tomorrow that i'm not gonna jinx it in true danny fashion by telling you about but you'll see if they don't on prime subscriber tomorrow till then at bet 365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every basket every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line whatever the sport whatever the moment it's never ordinary at bet 365 21 plus only must be present in virginia if you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help call 1-800-GAMBLER terms and conditions apply